Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of April 2021, and it is time for our Action April event month. Uh, essentially, what we're going to be doing this month is from week to week, uh, taking a look at some of the quintessential action classics. Uh, these would be in the like action hero, like borderline superhero vein of the action subgenre. So we're talking the Stallones, the Schwarzeneggers, the Van Dams, and maybe even a Steven Seagal movie in there at some point. Uh, so keep that in mind as we're talking about these movies. But uh, in joining me for our first review this month, which is going to be uh, Rambo, colon, First Blood Part 2, uh, directed by George P. Cosmatos, I have my, my brother here, uh, Matt, uh, who has a podcast of his own called uh, Couch Co-op. Uh, Matt, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for the plug. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I listen to your show uh, whenever you put out an episode. Uh, I like that you guys have like a, a set topic that you talk about from week to week on the show. And also I like the uh, the demo demolition episodes that you've you've been sneaking in there as well. Uh, it's a it's a fun concept. I, I like that you keep the runtime on those kind of short, too, because it's like a micro podcast. But really, really big fan of the show. Uh, I hope you keep it up. But um as we tend to do when we talk about like franchise films, and this is Rambo First Blood Part Two, um, and there, there's a very uh, distinct reason as to why we're talking about the sequel instead of the original. But a, a thing that we generally do in talking about franchise films of this ilk uh, is just say a little something about our personal connection to the franchise. Uh, so, like I said, we'll, we'll get to the reason as to why we're talking about this Rambo film in particular, but. Uh, Matt, you're you're my older brother, um, and and this this film series happens to predate me and you uh, by a few years. But uh, what did Rambo uh, mean to you growing up, or did you have any connection to the character? Rambo was the reason actually that we didn't get to watch GI Joe as kids. Like Rambo was kind of this embodiment of kind of a split in american like consumerism of like toys and products where um basically he was just he man for gi joe is how we viewed him like he was just this larger than life action star figure you know not so much stallone but rambo itself the embodiment like yeah, there was cartoons video games shitty toys like all sorts of things and so yeah it was kind of an interesting time because it was very much draped with a lot of propaganda behind that you know not to get too into the political territory but yeah that that was kind of why i grew up my perception of him yeah uh rambo is actually something that me being the younger brother i was born in the late 80s uh i was very much aware of it but it was mostly through just like cultural osmosis honestly like i i didn't actually start watching the rambo series until a little bit later in life not until i was probably a teenager but it was inescapable, like in childhood, like, like, in fact, Rambo became like part of the common vernacular in this country, like shortly after the release of this movie, like people using the phrase going Rambo, like it, you could verb, you could turn it into a verb, like to go Rambo is to go gung ho and like, take on larger than life odds single handedly without fear. Um, I mean, that's the thesis. Yeah, no, of that's absolutely. And the thing about it too, like, you have to remember, like in our household, like the big thing, like we grew up and our father's a Vietnam vet, which is something that 
at the time growing up, you just kind of assumed it was more commonplace. And then as you know, you go to the schoolyard and you start meeting people and all that, you realize like how unique that kind of was, particularly on the West Coast where we grew up um, in Seattle. So that was the, the large reason, like why I say like we didn't grow up watching G.I. Joe and stuff like that was because there was kind of this negative attitude of that whole war and the way it was kind of being retold through things like Rambo First Blood. You know, it was, you know, whereas the first movie kind of focused more on the plight of a true veteran, this one kind of store, you know, steered it in a completely new revisionist sort of attitude that really rubbed a lot of people, including our parents, the wrong way. Yeah, I wasn't aware that mom and dad had issues with that, but I, I, I can see it now in retrospect. <laughs> and it's like, hmm, Rambo didn't really have a presence in our home, like uh, in childhood and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's just that idea. It's like, again, like we we grew up in that Reagan era where all of a sudden everything's being marketed to you as a child. And the fear is that, like, are you being indoctrinated into believing that you need to become this G.I. Joe, this larger than life, you know, figure? It's like I had no problem with military service. A lot of people would benefit greatly from going into it. You know, it's but it was more so that concept of like, I need to grow up being prepared to go to war and die for my country. That, that was kind of the fear given the experience of folks like our parents who were very alive and active during the sixties and seventies. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause it, I remember that feeling like being on the playground and stuff and like meeting my friend's parents and stuff. And just assuming that, like you said about our own dad, that like, that that's what dads did. <laughs> it's like, and probably it was because of all the, uh, to quote the Simpsons, super liminal marketing being done towards young men uh, in the eighties. Um, but yeah, it, it really wasn't nearly as common as, as I guess I thought um, in childhood, but um, in talking about this film in particular, uh, Rambo colon first blood part two, uh, the, the naming the naming system for these movies is utterly hilarious where it's I, yeah i've always hated that this is rambo 2 like it's, it's rambo 2 and and like henceforth shall be referred to as such on this podcast but if you're not familiar the first film in the franchise is actually just called first blood rambo's name is nowhere in the title but because the character outgrew this film in particular the first film uh they started putting his name onto the cover Firstly, by, you know, saying Rambo colon. And then by the time you get to the third one, it's just fucking Rambo. <laughs> it's like no more first blood. It's just Rambo three. You're seeing <laughs> a similar thing happening with uh, Harley Quinn and DC entities right now. So, yeah, no, I I am a big proponent of numbered entries. I, that's why I'm forever thankful that the Fast and Furious films, like when they get to Fast 10, I'm going to give them a round of applause. It's like way to go way to go you made it <laughs> like you earned that shit because you you were unafraid to put a fucking 10 on on the title of your movie <laughs> but, i mean honestly if you're going to make something that long in the tooth you may as well just fucking own it like unless you're james bond because james bond you know they have a, a catchy title for each of those and none of them have james bond in the title but anyway that's neither here nor there but um the thing to know about the rambo franchise and again the reason why we're talking about this one is that there is a first film and then there's the rest. Um, this is this is a situation where it's actually a little bit similar to, I guess, a good chunk of the Godzilla franchise, which we talked about exhaustively last month. Or Rocky. I mean. Or Rocky, where the first Rocky I always maintained 
I mean, that was the one that won Best Picture. That was the one that won all the Oscars and is a legitimately fantastic, you know, awesome movie that I, I, I love. Um, but the major difference between that film and all the others is that it's a story of a person and a neighborhood and his his relationship with the girl at the pet store, whereas the sequels are much more concerned about what that person is doing. Well, I was just going to say, both Rambo and Rocky, they did the same thing where... Yeah essentially Rocky two, all they did was take kind of the elements that worked from the first one. And then they changed the ending to be what the audience actually wanted to see. And that's basically what they did here where they took this, you know, first film that was clearly a device not designed to star Sylvester Stallone was clearly intended to be a much more serious movie. And instead come the sequel it's like all people wanted to see was the flashback it's like well that guy was a badass in vietnam and he was a badass in his when he took over this small town in washington but i want to see what he did actually in the war how could we put him back there without doing the prequel because that wasn't in vogue at the time well that's how we ended up with rambo too yeah <laughs> so if if you're not familiar with how this franchise is structured um the first film was about john rambo uh returned from vietnam it's now the early 80s or at least the film came out in uh, 82 uh, same year as rocky 3 i believe uh and basically he comes he comes to a part of washington hope washington it's a small town in our home state funny enough uh and he is not well received by the local sheriff brian dennehy aka tommy boy's dad <laughs> and the zantac 75 guy <laughs> um and merry mishaps ensue basically I like like my brother had said it, it's it was kind of a true to life story of a, a real lived experience that many unfortunate Vietnam veterans suffered where I, I think even our own dad mentioned that where not everybody was particularly fond particularly fond of what happened in in the Vietnam War and kind of put that on some of the returning soldiers and in in the case of John Rambo he gets grossly mistreated by this nasty sheriff uh, has some PTSD flashbacks and takes off into the woods after assaulting several sheriffs and, and sheriff's deputies and stuff. Um, but the end of that story, uh, this Colonel Troutman character played by uh, Richard Crenna, I believe. Um, yeah. Dad always hated him, by the way. <laughs> Dad always hated Richard Crenna. Like, he he actually likes this first movie. I, I remember him especially liking the speech at the end of First Blood. Yeah, which it's funny enough, unintelligible I mean, to folks who don't speak South Philly. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, Stallone hits some hits some notes during that speech that are unintentionally comical. But the, the content is there. Like he clearly did a little bit of research here and there. And apparently most of that speech was improvised or at least written by Stallone himself, because this was Stallone at the height of his powers. He had that kind of muscle in Hollywood where he could, you know, jump into the writer's chair if, if he felt like it every once in a while. Well, and that's what he did. I mean, he, and in a way, that's what made it work. Like, you can tell that the guts of the first Rambo film are very much intended to be this kind of dark tale of a guy coming back and not being received in his homeland where he supposedly fought overseas to protect the way of life for all these folks in this small podunk town. He's being treated horribly. And kind of the underlying theme of that whole movie is like he could easily end everyone. Yet only one person ends up dying, and it's not by his hand, really. So 
that but because it's Stallone, it was kind of revised. He basically just rewrote this figure of John Rambo to be Rocky Balboa as a Vietnam vet. And it kind of worked though, because his charisma helped carry him where he's just kind of has this goofball quality to him that allows it to you to feel for him the whole time, despite the fact that he's essentially performing terrorist actions on a small town throughout the whole movie. But it works because the whole time he just has this kind of teddy bear nature to him where you're just like, but he just wants a hug. Like he literally just wants somebody to say like, welcome home. That's all he needs. And he could easily end everyone here and he refuses to do so. He has that much restraint. And that was kind of like I was saying, that's what you can tell like whoever watched that first one when they were writing this one, who happens to be a big name that we'll get to, um, all they were thinking the whole time is like, man, I want to see him in a setting where he's actually cut loose and can actually just go to town and, and show what he does. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because the success of First Blood, it's it's almost like a Star Wars kind of story where it seems like several accidents had to happen or several mishaps had to happen during production for, for us to get the actually kind of legitimately good movie that we got out of it. Um, I don't I don't care who you are. Um, politics aside regarding the rest of the franchise, First Blood is a pretty solid action adventure film. Um, and that's actually why it's not the subject, of, like the core subject of this episode is because I classify this as like a proto action film. This was a few years before we got to the, the breed of action that we're going to be talking about in earnest throughout this month. But um, the accidents that I'm referring to are one, like like Matt said, this is based on a book, actually, um, apparently written by, let me look it up, uh, David Morrell. Uh, not a name that's familiar to me, but uh, apparently a lot of the characters are taken directly from the text. But uh, everything I've read about this novel without having actually read it suggests that the character of Rambo was actually portrayed as kind of an, a nasty guy. Like he was meant to be the antagonist of the story. And in fact, they shot an ending for this film wherein Richard Crenna, who does have a few lines towards the end of the movie, um, alluding to the fact that, like, if I come face to face with Rambo, I'll know what I have to do. Um, they actually did shoot that ending where he does have the same confrontation with Rambo, but instead of the big speech, which, again, our Vietnam vet dad approved of for the most part, um, Richard Crenna just caps him in the stomach and he dies. And it's a downer ending. Um, but like you said... Uh, something about Stallone, the way he gave his performance, he does have a likable quality to him. And that image, the the many against one, I, I think we as Americans in particular are just always drawn to that. We always like to root for an underdog. And Stallone is very much aware of that he has a little bit of like a messiah complex. Uh, he likes to get like Mel Gibson. He does like to get tortured in his films. Helps um, when you're five five too. So. Yeah, you know, Napoleon complex on top of a messiah complex or a martyr complex, maybe. And same goes for Rocky Balboa. Part of what makes him so fun is that he's plucky and and he's scrappy. You know, he's never the biggest guy in the ring, but he's the guy that has the most grit. And same goes for the way John Rambo is often framed. Um, so it because of the way the film was shot and the way it was edited, I. Uh, the director and the producers all kind of agreed that it's like, you know, I don't think the ending from the book or the, the ending that we actually intended, like we started production working based around uh, is going to work because nobody's going to be happy about it. They're going to be sad that John Rambo ate shit for, you know, really dumb reasons. 
Well, and I think that the one underlying part of the first film I always felt was that it's kind of goofy at times. Like I said, there's only one death and the death is like really stupid because it's a guy acting completely recklessly because he hates this returning war veteran so much. He's insisting on pursuing him in this helicopter in this dangerous cliffside setting. And he essentially crashes basically. So it's like, like it was goofy. And then like when they bring in the national guard, I actually really appreciated that section of the film where, cause it really showcases kind of like that. These are weekend warriors that, you know, they're willing to answer the call, but like when they're crawling through the mud and stuff, it's like the one guy like pricks his like finger on some, like, I forget. It's like vegetation or, and he's like, ow, ah, like it's like this reaction of just somebody who's like clearly just, playing war versus john rambo who's covered in mud and crawling all around making booby traps so um but yeah i believe it was al pacino was originally supposed to play the role of john rambo and even, which and, uh, another italian even smaller man <laughs> <laughs> well he's supposed to be half native american as well hence why yes. he makes all the traps and whatnot so yeah again italians in hollywood traditionally cast in the roles <laughs> of native americans for so many generation so uh yeah anyway but yeah I, I could see if that were played by al pacino that it would make sense that the end would be him giving a nasty speech and getting shot in the stomach and I mean, he's done uh, it before yeah. <laughs> for sure um but i i actually read that uh um steve mcqueen i think was offered the role um because this this was one of those projects that was long gestating like the script for it was written a long time before it went into production and the role was offered to tons of people and yeah um they i think they even drew up a poster uh for the for the film with a uh, kirk douglas as a uh, troutman uh, as mm. the richard krenna character and uh, lee marvin was offered yeah, a, lee a marvin later. Was line of. but kirk douglas as troutman would have it could have worked um richard krenna makes me laugh i think he's the goofiest part of all of these movies because um the best acting I've ever seen him do is in Hot Shots Part Deux <laughs> because he's literally playing the same character, but because of his acting method, he has like Shatnerian acting where yeah. it's lots of it's like herky jerk head movements and lots of punctuation on his lines. It's like he's too animated. Like he comes straight out of a fucking cartoon. Like he comes from the Rambo cartoon and then you have Brian Dennehy selling the shit out of his stuff and, and Stallone being basically fucking mute. And then you have this fucking guy show up. It's a totally different movie. He, by the way, he, I need to give credit to this. And this is going to happen more than once on this episode, because the reason why we're starting action April with Rambo colon first blood part two <laughs> is because I think of it as like the pro the prototype for this particular subgenre of action film. Um, this was 1982, the first First Blood, but by the time you get to 85, we're in a different playground. Um, but what I was getting at is um, this character of Troutman. I want to say kind of sets the precedent for the uh, the Steven Seagal thing where you have the guy show up and be like, you've never heard about this guy before. He'll come out of the shadows and he'll tear your head off and he'll shit down your stump. He'll kill you five times before you hit the ground because there's <laughs> always one of those guys in these action movies that has to talk up just how super fucking badass and capable the hero is because he can't do that by himself usually because the person who's playing them has anemic acting ability, Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> but in this case, it's like, this is the first time, the earliest instance I can think of of having one of these characters that just shows up to just 
dump exposition about all the cool shit John Rambo has done because he can't say it for himself. Yeah, well, it's very much like we we made the comparison between the first Rocky film. And it's kind of like with that, where more of the major moments of that film are not the actual fighting. It's all the human nature in between. And very much in the first Rambo, it's the same thing where it's like, even though he like showcases that he has all these abilities, he's not out there killing or like maiming people. So in a way you're, you're kind of always like, you have to rely on that. You have to have somebody saying like, no, you, you don't understand. Like if he wanted to, like everything, everybody's going to die. Like it's over, but you know, because he shows so much restraint, you almost need that constant reminder because, you know, especially in these action oriented folks, you have to kind of dumb everything down a bit to be like, in case you didn't catch it, <laughs> this is going to happen. <laughs> like, Makes me think of dark, dark helmet looking directly into the camera. Everybody got that? <laughs> like, okay, we can move on. But right, um, I love that you pointed out the the National Guardsmen in that first in First Blood because um, they do it with the the sheriff's office as well, where they're like traipsing through the woods, and you can hear like ADR dialogue of them talking about like, yeah, I went hunting up here last last month or whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah, oh fuck, and and yeah, like what you're talking about the vegetation brings to mind the the SWAT guy in Die Hard for yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the, it's the exactly Rose Bush the ow <laughs> like, right before they're trying to infiltrate Nakatomi Plaza. It's like yeah, the, I, they don't have a prayer, but it's just like you know that's some fucking filmmaking stuff right there and the national guard they take it a step further and it does become like a, a superman to richard lester act where it's like borderline like i don't know like physical comedy kind of stuff because like it's right almost after, like looney tunes like, like yeah it's, it, it's very it's very cheeky funny stuff where I, right after they blow up the mine that rambo's hiding in like Brian Denny, he chews out one of them and he's like, Why well, gotta be back in the drugstore tomorrow? <laughs> it's like it's just a reminder that it's like, yeah, these guys are playing at doing a thing that Rambo has very much lived and again has is very much capable of bringing upon them if he choose if he chooses to. Um, but by the time you get to the final act of that movie, it becomes more of just like a almost like a Moby Dick type scenario where Brian Denny, he who by the way, I, I did like that they put some like uh, military medals on his desk behind him in his office uh, which would suggest that he also did you know was in the service at some point not sure well, what branch. we'll get into this further and, and this kind of goes back to like what we were talking about with our father having served too but that's the one thing to keep in mind that like this perception of like that the people who well you know treated these veterans so awful when they came back like the one story that gets thrown around is like oh everyone spit on me called me a baby killer and all that that's not necessarily accurate like it was both camps like you also had folks like this brian dennehy figure where he was a former vet who considered the vietnam vet a lost war and thus judged re returning veterans as losers because that was kind of the mentality in the country at the time for some hardliner types and that's one thing that he they do very well in Rambo 2, I'll say, is showcasing that it's not just this like crazy concept of like, oh my gosh, like it's, you know, this country is up in arms and demands like change and all. It's like, no, there's actually some hardliner guys who like have this attitude of like, fuck everybody. <laughs> like we're just focused on the task at hand, get it done or whatever, or you failed at getting it done. So I have to come in and deal with it. So it's fascinating to me in that regard that like it goes out of its way to not just 
rely on the constant theme that you see in later renditions of Vietnam vets coming home of just kind of like a bunch of hippies, like being like, ah, boo, go home, you know? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because it's absolutely true. And I I think the way, uh, the way Brian Dennehy's character is positioned, I want to say maybe he was a Korean war veteran. Um, And I mean, shit, I went to school with a, with a kid in grade school whose father was also in Vietnam as a Marine and uh, yeah, his uh, his opinion on how things went down was radically different from how the sentiments in our own household. Like he was, oh yeah, he yeah. was pretty. He he had a lot of sore spots um, regarding uh, that chunk of history, whereas our dad was always a little bit blasé about it. Um, but that's a difference of perspective um, that is kind of reflected in the movie, where it's like, yeah, you, you guys both did a thing. You have very different opinions about it, though. Um, but yeah, by the time you get to the the closing act of that movie, basically what happens is Rambo does not kill Brian Dennehy. Um, I, I just like calling him Brian Dennehy. He has a name in the movie, but he's to me he, he's he's Chris Farley's dad. <laughs> it's like you don't you don't know how traumatic that was to me when I was a kid. I seriously thought that man died, and I, I he was only in that movie Tommy Boy for like ten minutes, and I I somehow found a way to love him just based on that, but. Um, he does spare him and he's taken into custody by Colonel Troutman, who I don't think we mentioned it. It was like basically the guy who trained him and apparently also served in Vietnam to some capacity. But uh, he goes off in his custody and then we get uh, a theme song, which all of these Rambo movies have, except for the later entries. Um, this was like a, a a staple of this chunk of Stallone's filmography. Like they always had rock and theme songs. And this one's no exception. It's called uh, It's a Long Road. And it's it fucking rocks. It's great. <laughs> and it plays over the end credits. And it it has the same melody as the theme music for the movie. But uh, which brings us to the actual subject um, for today's episode of Rambo 2. Um, and man, what a difference three years makes, um, both for Stallone's career, but just the, the climate of the country, basically. Like yeah. so much oh, yeah. changed. Um, and I think it's very, very, very telling that we, we, by the way, we get in country, uh, as they would say, inside of five minutes, because it is 1985. This is a proper action movie. We are wasting no fucking time. In fact, the first shot in this movie, <laughs> in case you weren't aware of what you were getting into, is a goddamn explosion. <laughs> no words, no titles, just kaboosh. <laughs> Followed by a bunch of muscular, oiled up guys working in a rock quarry. Hitting rocks. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> it's it's phenomenal. It's like, yes, this is this is a significantly dumber movie than what we just came out of. Because like like I said, First Blood is a legit good movie, but it's a very, very different kind of movie, even though it bears the same title. Like it's part of the same franchise or whatever. It's just the foundation for like Matt had said, uh, an evolution that really closely mirrors that of the Rocky movies where I've always said that Stallone, I really, I I do like Stallone for the most part. I will defend him irrationally um, (laughs) from time to time. But um, if you do any investigating into his career during this time period, it's really, it's sad because he, he was his own worst enemy in so many ways because, I mean, if you're the Rocky guy, you know, you write a screenplay that's attached to best, best picture and you pull a lot of strings and take a pay cut to be the, the main actor of that film, 
you're going to have a little bit of a high opinion of yourself. And then you start making shit tons of money. You start working with other big actors and big name directors and stuff. It's only going to feed into that. And so many of his 80s and 90s movies, mostly the 80s stuff, are marred with stories about him futzing with the production in in ways that don't result in better movies. In In the case of First Blood, that worked out. In the case of some of those Rocky movies, absolutely worked out. But if you look at some of his other stuff, like fucking Cobra, which, by the way, is directed by the same person, George Cosmatos, um, that, that movie was butchered in editing, mostly because of Stallone and mostly because of wanting to like cut down the violence and the runtime. And like Nighthawks, he was like, I don't want to be on screen with Rutger Howe. You don't need equal screen time. That's fucking bullshit. And it ruined the movie because the whole point of that movie is that you're supposed to have a cat and mouse between, you know, your hero and your villain and doesn't necessarily work if you only get to see the villain for five fucking minutes in the movie. Well, I was just going to say the whole thing with Sylvester Stallone that's going to separate him from other characters in in these movies you're reviewing this month is he's, as an actor, kind of had to formulate himself to be an action star. You can just tell in his body type throughout the Rocky franchise, like... He literally took himself, who's naturally a smaller kind of guy with kind of a goofball personality. And that's what won people over in Rocky, the first Rocky film. But he was unwilling to play to that. Like he wanted to be something completely different. He didn't have that imposing figure that like Arnold could have or natural charisma to, to boot, to just kind of walk into any sort of role and just immediately embody whatever you want him to be to some capacity. Like Stallone, I feel like has always been playing against his gifts and the rare instances where he actually focuses on that are when you get the really nice performances like you saw with the first Creed movie where, you know, he got a lot of critical acclaim partially because he was basically playing who he is. He was playing a guy who's got a very warm kind of gregarious personality with some goofball dad jokes thrown in and, you know, a little bit of the old palooka thing. But but that that's. I think who he more so is and not this imposing stoic figure that he was trying to cultivate in the Rambo franchise, certainly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that's a little bit of a double-edged sword for him. Uh, I mean, you could argue that one of those edges is sharper than the other, um, p- potentially leaning towards the negative um, because you're right. I mean, that's actually part of why I have as much respect and more so than that, just interest in him as a figure in Hollywood is because he, like, he literally does have that, like, self-made quality to him that's kind of rare where you can see you can actually see the evolution and you can see the uh square peg trying to fit into a round hole aspect to it because you're right he he isn't a terribly big guy he he really did have to just commit to doing that and in fact part of the reason they didn't want him to be in rocky was because he was chubby (laughs) and he actually had like maybe that Maybe that like made him insecure to like to a certain extent. Like I'm sure those seeds were planted long before that. But um, yeah, he I guess the story of him getting in shape for Rocky was he he just would like bang on cars in a junkyard with like a mallet. Like he couldn't afford a gym or something. And and of course you've told me several times that like many of his screenplays get like written in a single night, like in a fever dream or something. And on the whole, like I think his whole family, not just him. Uh, there's there's an eccentric quality yeah. um, that you can you can tell looking at just his filmography like Frank Stallone he's he's a whole different bag of kittens but uh, Sylvester he's he's a very eccentric performer he makes a lot of odd choices like Cobra uh, 
scissor pizza come on man <laughs> like to this day that is one of the most puzzling fucking things i've ever seen in a movie where he sits down to eat a slice of pizza but he cuts it into like chunks with scissors and i could totally see stallone just be like yeah this seems like a good idea that seems like what cope ready would do and then yeah, that, the, we, saw the weird... one guy in the neighborhood did that and so he had to replicate it so all of hollywood would have to see experience it yeah and then classic got... philadelphia move right there and then he got really into like the new orleans culture and stuff and like started doing a lot of movies around there and like he got really into like that kind of like that brand of music and then he's had multiple movies where he has those like obscenely souped up like old hot rod trucks and stuff and and of course the gaudy jewelry and the expendables movies and even the the weird fucking face paint at the end of the first expendables movie that even eric roberts probably i'm sure he improvised that he just showed up to the set that day and he's like why the fuck are their faces painted and stallone is probably it's it's, uh, it's aesthetics you know and in fact, I think I watched a behind-the-scenes feature that I did see him with his bare hands painting, like painting something on the back of the set just to add an extra detail that nobody would notice but him. But he just felt it needed to be there, and yeah, his his movies are riddled with details like that. But um, um, yeah, not I mean, not to steer it again too much into the realm of only talking about Stallone, but I, I would <laughs> say that partially losing uh, control of a figure that is essentially based on you in Rocky, like, you know, he, despite the fact that he's been involved with, with some of the creative process and all these things, like he doesn't really own that franchise, like despite it really being based on him. So I think that that really played into it of, I'm sure that that's always ever since been him just constantly being like, I need to make this my own. Cause I'm going to fight behind the scenes to make sure that I own the rights in some capacity to this character and I need to make sure that they can't replace me with anything or it'll always be associated with me. Yeah. Um, I, I think it all comes back to insecurity with him uh, because very famously um, when he was doing that Copland movie, uh, apparently people would approach him like, like the press and stuff when he was putting on weight for that role, which, you know, I did eventually get around to seeing that movie and it's not, it's not half bad. It's not, it's not the sum of its parts. Like on paper, that sounds like like a heat or a tombstone type situation, which tombstone's not a great film either, <laughs> but you know, it, at least it's dumb entertainment. But Copland is is not nearly as good as it could have been or should have been, rather. But I thought he was good in it at the very least. And you know, it's one of the few times you actually get to see him, you know, with a few pounds around the midsection. But what I was getting at was that when he was approached by the press while he was putting on weight for his method acting process, uh, he was very insecure about it. Like he'd, he'd like be very quick about saying, well, it's for a role. Like I'm, it's, I'm not out, I'm not out of shape. I'm not going down the drain or whatever. Like it's for a role. Like, um, and you know, with all the plastic surgery and all like the, <laughs> TRT and like I was gonna say the amount of taking. HGH that's rolling through that guy's veins at all any given moment. I mean, yeah. Yeah, and I I think it all comes back to just like a sense of insecurity. And yeah, I, I could totally see it being about like wanting to main, maintain control, especially when, you know, in 1976, again, it's like a Citizen Kane type situation where you're like thrust or a, actually M. Night Shyamalan might be a better example where it's just like you're put up on this massive pedestal very early in your filmography. And then it's not so much external forces pushing you to hold on to that but internal ones where it's like i 
I was there. I need to, in my own mind, feel that I'm still there. Um, so yeah, he seems he seems very protective of of his image and of his career and whatnot. But uh, I don't think of this as a tangent. I mean, there's a reason we're covering a different action star uh, for each week this month because I, I did want to actually talk about the people themselves um, in addition to the movies. But we probably should get into the movie proper. So. Um, like I said, it begins with a fucking explosion. Uh, so right there, we know what kind of movie we're getting into. Um, but what I said earlier, though, was we we go from this prison, this prison like work area where we're just like hammering rocks. And this is this is after the conclusion of the first movie. So Rambo is doing time. And within five minutes, he's no longer there. <laughs> he's in he's in the jungles of Vietnam. And the way this happens is uh, Troutman, again, played by Richard Crenna, who is in the first three films and does the same fucking slightly smug performance in each and every one of them. And it makes it tickles me in just the best of ways. I was going to uh, say, if you ever played Metal Gear Solid, I mean, he's the colonel. That's literally all you need to know. Like, yeah, I, I don't think we're going to get anywhere in this conversation because I there's too many there's too many references and inspirations that are directly birthed from this movie. And again, that's why I want to start this month with it um, is because you're absolutely right. Not only the character, Colonel Campbell from Metal Gear absolutely is Colonel Troutman. Like he even wears the same beret at all times. Uh, he kind of talks similar to him just a little bit uh, he does the same exposition dumps about how awesome solid snake is and stuff um he has the same like mentor position but i was gonna the say the father the entire... figure role too like the yeah. fact that like you're dealing with these super alpha male like protagonists that need to have those moments of emotional vulnerability and he's that's that's really what he's always been to me yeah in particular in the first film uh, and the second one, uh, he's he's just kind of like his cheerleader, <laughs> like like he's he's just the, the one the one guy who cares about what Rambo's doing from moment to moment. And then the third one, they get like a little bit of a buddy cop dynamic going, right? Uh, which right. probably came from like I think Lethal Weapon came out around there, maybe just before. But um, yeah, he actually gets to get his hands dirty in the third one finally, which. You know, I, I'm not particularly fond of the character, but if he's going to be in three movies and he's supposed to have military service background, you, you got to get him to do something. You know, he's got to hit somebody at least. Right, <laughs> like right. by the time we get to the utter stupidity of that third movie, it's like if, if he doesn't hit someone, I'm going to get really mad. But or if he doesn't explode or something. <laughs> but um, but what I was saying about Metal Gear, though, is that so much of Metal Gear owes quite a bit. Uh, to this movie um, and funny enough that like Metal Gear borrows from both this and uh, Escape from New York quite a bit um, this movie in particular though uh, Rambo 2 borrows a little bit from Escape from New York just the nature of the mission and how he's deployed by himself with no weapons and stuff and how it's it's not so much against his will but it, it's very much that template it, escape from new york came out in 1981 i think that's something that's not to be overlooked that's like that that set a template for sure like this the one like gray hat uh, on a on a one man mission to save the world kind of thing um but yeah uh the the the, the line uh, that sends us to the jungles of Vietnam is basically Troutman recruits him uh, for a special mission to locate POWs, which I don't know if I presume this was still a thing in 1985, but this was very much ripped from the headlines um, 
like immediately this was, the release of the movie. Yeah, th- this was a again without going into the political shit show component of it. Like th- this is kind of like highlighting like this was a a thing that our father spoke of a lot, where there there were a great deal of folks in Vietnam who were unaccounted for. And, you know, a lot of the general public assumed that these were casualties, but then there were a lot of folks in particular, those who had served that believed that there were still POWs that had not either been, you know, ransom had been paid to get them home or just were forever in captivity. So um, this is something that I know I had heard growing up in our household, our father talking about his service. I don't know enough about to tell you like how accurate it was. There's a very good chance because I know a big part of the Vietnam War was that a lot of the numbers were um, misleading, uh, particularly in the evening news, because that was a big deal with the Vietnam War was it was the first war that played out where every American kind of had TV at the time or at least access to seeing that. So you would see kind of the body count basically in the evening news. And so obviously the American side would be kind of skewed to showcase and make it seem like there were a lot, far less casualties than there actually were. So there's a good chance that a lot of these numbers came from that. But that being said, you know, it was something anybody who served, you know, obviously had to wonder and be concerned. So yeah, it makes sense that that was the focus of the film. Yeah. Uh, we get a, actually this movie shares quite a bit of DNA with its, with its sequel Rambo three um, structurally, they're alarmingly similar. Um, and very similar to like the Rocky franchise where, like you said about those first two movies, it's basically a do over. (laughs) Um, and there are some aspects to this movie Rambo two that you can tell, um, you know, they could have done a little bit better. So they did the third time. Only problem was they put it in a package that wasn't as good overall and didn't do as well at the box office. Oh yeah. And it cost more too. So on the whole, it was considered a little bit of a failure, but, um, man, I've spent like 20 minutes trying to get to this. <laughs> the, the line that starts the mission, basically, obviously Rambo accepts the mission to go locate the POWs that were left behind. Potentially, uh, we do discover there are, in fact, POWs, but um, is do we get to win now? Do we get to win this time? And that I think that's the thesis for the presentation of this movie in particular where it's no longer 1982, we're no longer doing the sad sack, Vietnam veteran comes home and gets shat on. It's now 1985, and the entire country still has a chip on its shoulder about that thing that happened 10 years ago. And this is this is our Rocky II. This is, this is, we want another shot at it, basically. Well, and this was kind of, you know, I started off by saying, like, this is why our particular, I think it was our mom, but this is why, like, this movie wasn't really big in our household when we were very young or why we didn't really get into the G.I. Joe thing was because of that, because the reality of it is like, even though actually the guts of this movie and actually the real storyline is pretty solid in terms of being kind of apolitical, mm-hmm. it's when you remove from that, especially if you're a young, dumb kid, is you're not going to retain all of that. All you retain is what our memories of Rambo growing up are, which is he's the all-American hero with the M60 that he's shooting up in the air in victory. And the problem with that is that's a revisionist view of the Vietnam War, that this one super soldier just goes in, wipes everyone out. And it's almost like this telling of being like, see, this is we're getting you back because of what happened years ago, you know, and that's in that light, that was kind of the fear. It's like we don't we need to grow up and actually know what 
history happen and not just like believe this hype of just like, yeah, America, fuck yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's actually a significant difference between this film and all the others we'll be covering this month is that this one does actually have a political aspect to it. Um, it it's impossible to ignore. It's very apparent. Um, whereas the other dumb action movies will be, they're all dumb, by the way. <laughs> I mean, it's action April. It's all good. It's full dumb. Yeah. Uh, real <laughs> dumb. <laughs> uh, they're, they're just mostly just comic book, stupid, you know, action movies. Whereas this one does have a little bit of an edge to it. There, there is commentary here. And uh, I think it's, it's about time we talk about who was involved in the writing of this film. My brother uh, alluded to it earlier, but um, Matt, do you want to fill people in on who you were uh, talking about <laughs> mr titanic himself james cameron yeah king of the world james cameron uh yeah james cameron apparently was involved in the writing of the screenplay for this film as was sylvester stallone um and i find that utterly fascinating because i i was not aware of that until fairly recently um but now that now that I have that seed planted in my head, it's impossible for me to not see it. It's like, I see Cameron's fingerprints all over this. Like when we first get in country and, and Rambo's getting his briefing, like Troutman's his buddy. He knows that. And Martin Cove is nobody's buddy. <laughs> Martin Cove, by the way, is the, the uh, Cobra Kai uh, gym leader um, from, I guess that show is super popular. I haven't actually watched it, but from karate kid, uh, strike strike hard strike first strike hard like no mercy or whatever um <laughs> yeah it's the cobra kai guy himself is the person who greets rambo when they touch down via helicopter it's like oh uh this mission is compromised <laughs> like um he's actually fairly chummy um but as soon as you see that mug you're like he's up to no good and one thing that kyle who unfortunately isn't here today um pointed out is that there's a curious aesthetic detail uh, in the casting of this film. And that's that almost all the Americans Rambo aside are blondes. And I think that's fitting because, you know, this, this was the, the 1980s, Ralph Macchio, Sylvester Stallone, even John Travolta a little bit for, for like two minutes, like staying alive, wasn't good, but Stallone directed it. So he could like get him back up on his feet. It's like, there was like a little bit of an Italian love fest going on in Hollywood um, and even in the public consciousness, I mean, for fuck's sake, Eddie Murphy even had a bit about, about everybody wanting to be Italian because of Rocky and shit um, and The Godfather and all the success of those films. And by positioning Rambo like as the one like dark haired individual in the room, uh, it does it does kind of fit the characterization where it's like he is kind of the odd man out here because there's nefarious deeds being done around him. And just from a visual standpoint, it it's good it's good like visual storytelling where it's like there's one of these things is not like the others and you you the viewer can't help but notice that so i'm, I'm glad kyle pointed that out yeah that's a great observation i didn't even really grasp that until just now yeah i'm, I'm glad he pointed that out because i i it didn't compute i mean i did notice it but i didn't actually take any time to think about what it might mean and then i thought further and i was like huh i'm sure that was intentional because it absolutely couldn't have been but um, in addition to Martin Cove, we also have uh, Charles Napier, who I don't know about you, Matt, but to me, he'll always be the Ernest goes to jail guy. <laughs> he was the he was the <laughs> warden, and Ernest goes to jail, and he has an amazing voice. Like it's actually kind of weird in this movie because he's playing a squirrely figure, but it's Charles fucking Napier. It's like you should be like a judge or something, or like or 
a warden at a fucking hard ass prison. Um, but he's like, I guess, like the mission coordinator. Like, he, he's positioned as like a suit or like maybe a, like a, a CIA guy or something. One of those guys. He's, I, I mean, it kind of is that beginning of that privatization of uh, military where it's, or I guess, mercenaries. I mean, it, it's kind of hinted at that, like uh, the guy from Karate Kid is a merc and that the guy with the sunglasses you see later too. Um, they're not real soldiers, they're former soldiers and thus know the legend of Rambo, but are also just kind of there for a paycheck. Like they know, owe allegiance to nobody truly. Yeah, there's no uniforms or salutes uh, between any of these guys. And like I said, from a visual standpoint, you can tell something is up, even though like none of these guys actually do anything violent to Rambo or anything. In fact, like I said, Martin Cove is fairly welcoming of him early on. And he even cares about him like when he's going to fall out of the plane. He's like, hey, he's going to fall out of the plane. Like if he was in like full on Cobra Kai mode, he'd be like, get off my plane. <laughs> like you're weighing us down. But no, he's he's shown to be a person with morals and a conscience, but again, you can tell something's up amongst them. But um, I like that Napier too kind of looks like Brian Denny, so a little it's... bit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that that was fitting, and um, much like the National Guardsmen, we do get some some like blocking here and there to to tip us off to the fact that Rambo is not. These people are not on Rambo's level. And a little bit of this is like just like hyping up the the awesomeness of John Rambo. Um, but this is also shorthand, like visual shorthand for, oh, he's a scumbag. Um, oftentimes, like this is a thing that, like, was it Carlito, the wrestler? Like his gimmick was that he would eat an apple and like spit it in people's face and stuff. <laughs> like there, there's a thing, there's a little bit of a thing where like people who do things callously while eating um that's like visual shorthand for them being a total prick like if somebody's like eating french fries while people are getting beat up in the room it's like oh well he's obviously a prick it's like <laughs> i don't know you but i'm sure you're a jerk <laughs> but in charles napier's case uh he's like doing the mission briefing he's sitting down he's like get me something cold <laughs> like and they don't even put money into the the soda machine they just open the door and give him a diet coke <laughs> I like that detail. Like, I don't know why. I think it's just the thought of like that they still have the person loaded up and they're just using it as an ice box. But something about that, like, just is perfect. I, again, visual shorthand, it, it's almost like hinting at like corruption or like rotten inside kind of thing where it's like it has this glossy exterior, but inside it's all it's all phony. Um, but yeah, so right off the bat, you can tell everyone in this room is a total douchebag except for Troutman. But I'm glad you pointed out the guy with the sunglasses because I, I didn't notice it until this most recent rewatch, but uh, the Expendables, uh, Gary Daniels is wearing the exact same outfit. Uh, Gary Daniels, the, the British fella from the first Expendables movie who gets the epic uh, head kick um, from Jet Li and Jason Statham, you know, the, the neck break. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He's same blue shirt, same holster. I don't remember if he had sunglasses, but I'm almost positive Stallone like said, you're going to be that guy. <laughs> you're going to wear the thing that that guy wore. <laughs> it's, it's it's great. I love that. It's a, it's a nice little callback. Um, yeah, he's got one line in the movie and he totally botched it. But Oh, the exchange with in the helicopter? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he kind of tries to talk tough to Troutman towards the end of the movie. Or no, like the midway point. And it's bad. It's like, 
it's kind of like an Ed Wood thing where it's like, why did you give him all the lines? <laughs> like, it's like the guy's completely unintelligible. No, it, that character should have just been mute and it would have been perfect. Because honestly, like the, the costume actually conveys a lot. And uh, the second he opens his mouth, it's just like, and that's over. <laughs> well, I don't know if you want to go through the movie moment by moment, Matt, but like, is there is there something else like around the early goings of the movie you want to get into? No, I mean, all you need to know at this point is like he has a mission. He needs to go back in country because he was at one point in this prison camp where they're believe that there may be POWs. He needs to go and get visual proof with a camera, not engage in combat, but just take photos and determine if there are actual POWs being held in the former camp that he was imprisoned in while he was in country. And essentially that's it. Then it begins. And once the big dumb action stuff starts, like it's not a lot to talk about plot wise. So yeah, I, I'm, I think part of the success of this movie, and this one was massively successful. Um, by the way, trivia point about the first First Blood. I told my brother this before we recorded. Um, apparently, it was the first American blockbuster ever released in China, and it did quite handsomely. Um, in fact, its box office uh, numbers were not surpassed, or at least attendance numbers, uh, not not money, um, were not surpassed until like the 2010s, like 2018 or something. Um which explains a lot because uh, a lot of Chinese uh, blockbuster cinema these days kind of feel like Rambo movies <laughs> as evidenced by those wolf warrior movies and their ilk. Um, but yeah, this, this one, as far as I remember, was at least in this country, um, probably the most financially successful of the Rambo movies. Uh, the third one did well, but it cost quite a bit more, um, which is kind of funny actually, because I, I did mention that it does a few things better uh, especially in the action department. And on the whole, um, I don't know if it's just me, but from a visual standpoint, this this movie, Rambo 2, is kind of ugly. Um, it looks a little cheap from time to time. Like, the photography is not great. Um, oh, yeah. The, it's, it's dreadful at times. Yeah, it looks chintzy. And uh, some of the staging of the action is a little raggedy where it feels a little, not improvisational, but just not as tight, I guess, as you you would want it to be. And... Uh, they corrected that for the third one. It's a much more visually handsome movie. In fact, Russell Mulcahy, uh, the Highlander guy, uh, was set to direct it. And I guess he walked off the set like two weeks in. So I think his DP finished it, which explains why it's a handsome movie and a dumb movie with not terribly amazing acting performances. But um, yeah, the third one looks much better. Some of the action is better. And in fact, there's a death in that third one that... I've said it several times in the past month. We need to do another cinematic deaths uh, episode, Matt. Uh, you, you, me, and Kyle, because there's a death in that third one that deserves deserves to be spotlighted. Um, I won't spoil it here. I, I think I know which one you're talking about. You I, know which I, one. I, I'm talking I agree. About. Yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. I'm put it this way. I am a very big fan of when someone has to die more than once. <laughs> Where it's like, we can't just kill this guy. We got to kill him like three times. <laughs> it's like, I, I love that. But um, yeah, this movie from a visual standpoint, not the most handsome of pictures. But um, what I was getting at, though, about about the format, though, um, I think part of why this movie was very, very successful and why these movies are generally well regarded as action movies, uh, because if you really think about it, there are a lot of movies that, that fit this particular archetype. Um, it's just how slim, like how streamlined it is. 
where it's like they don't give you much more than you need to know uh they they hit the ground running uh, in terms of like bloodlighting and stuff they do kind of like almost all the rambo movies kind of keep that for the back end um but there's a sense of momentum to it where you know you get your setup and then it just goes and you don't have to think too hard about anything <laughs> I think that that's, I mean, I've always had that theory and we've talked about this in the past with like Michael Bay films where like there is something to be said for concocting a storyline that may touch on some really complex like political themes, but somehow completely remains like removed from it at the same time. That's why I have such a like weird relationship with this movie because while it, it stirs up certain emotions in me watching it, thinking about the history of the country at the same time i'm like once i'm removed from that and just watching the big dumb action elements of it i'm like yeah this is pretty fun and the whole thing about it is like like i had said before it's like most people when they go watch a movie aren't they're just there to tune out like they don't want to be engaged in all this higher level bullshit so when they walk out of the theater they're like yeah shit blew up he flew a helicopter it was rad you know <laughs> <laughs> no i mean honestly that that is very, very true. I mean, especially my friends who have kids, like that's generally why they would go see a movie is because they don't really want to be thinking too hard about the experience. They just want to get out of the house, have a good time. Um, and I think that's why why the Rambo movies carried on for as long as they have is just because like, as far as I know, there's never been a Rambo movie over an hour and a half long. Um, which is which is very wise. That's how that's how you should that's how you should do these kinds of movies. So your podcast talking about Rambo two is gonna be longer than any Rambo movie. I mean that that's kind of normal for this podcast. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I I do like um, when he takes off to go on his mission. Uh, this was very 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 reminiscent of Escape from New York, and in fact, the entire setup is very very similar to that even like the control room and stuff. And um, all of that is very reminiscent of that. But um, I do like that Rambo has like just one parting line to Troutman about like all the details that Charles Napier just told you about his military record are bogus, like keep your eye on him, um, put a pin in that. But um, when we're in country, we, we get to meet his, uh, his, uh, I guess I guess it's his love interest, but this is actually one thing that I do give <laughs> I do give Stallone a lot of credit for, and I think I I can't be certain, but I want to say this might be like a a conscious decision on his part, uh, and maybe again pointing to insecurity is there there are very few movies in his filmography where he he smooches ladies, and I think it's because he's not terribly proud of what he looks like when he's doing it. And I he, don't know, man. Well, I, I remember having to sit in a room with a friend's like stepdad when the specialist was on. That was awkward as hell. So see, I, I knew you were going to bring that up. Um, but I want to say that was, I mean, A, it's Sharon Stone or whatever in the 90s. Yeah. If, if somebody pens a script that puts me in that position, sure. But the other thing was it was the 90s. And as Kyle has has joked to me personally many a time, uh, the nine, the early '90s in particular, was the half decade of Michael Douglas's dong flopping around. Because, <laughs> because basically, the first half of the '90s was Michael Douglas erotic thrillers, just yeah. like left and right, nothing but that. So maybe Stallone got caught up in something like that, where there was a script where maybe Michael Douglas was actually courted to be in the film, and and Stallone read he read the room and he was like, 
well, they want to see my package. <laughs> like, I, I don't want to see it, but that's apparently what everyone in Hollywood's doing right now. Well, there is something to be said. Like, Van Damme, I think, is the king of this, but probably everyone who, who is on your pantheon for this month of action stars, um, I completely invalidated if you add Steven Seagal, but um, a lot of them, like, part of the appeal to these action, big dumb action movies is like the way that they're kind of showcased, like, actually is kind of intended to be like, it's all the stuff you'd see in a bullshit like movie to like sexualize a woman only applied to the action hero. So like this whole movie Stallone has his like oiled up arms out, you know, and he's constantly been lifting throughout the whole time. You can tell like the whole time he's just glistening and, you know, Arnold was obviously like the king of this and Van Damme or I can't say he's the king because Van Damme was the king. I mean, how many gratuitous <laughs> butt shots of Van Damme? I think there have actually been like doctoral theses about Van Damme's butt because of how much he would just kind of embody that in his movies. So, yeah, no, that that's definitely a that's like part of like a qualifying factor for some of these movies is that you, you're right. They kind of the way these characters are lensed is is kind of similar to that it's it's semi-erotic almost where it, and it, it's comical honestly if if you were to like change the the sex of the person like it would it'd be very strange but um yeah john rambo has no sleeves except for in the prologue basically like in in multiple films none of his shirts have sleeves and you're right he is glistening all the time um but yeah, like, like I said, this is the only movie that has any sort of political bent to it. All the other ones are just utterly stupid. And that aspect of the film is even more intensified than in this one. <laughs> but um, yeah, when when he gets in country, like the, the first leg of the journey is just getting out of the plane and they attempt to stage an action scene here. It's really dull like basically he he fails at jumping out of an airplane <laughs> it's really awkward and stupid it's not dramatic it, it's a hundred percent one of those things that gets tacked on because they realize that holy shit we've gone 15 minutes and we haven't had any intense beats yeah it's a it's the slasher movie template where it's been 10 minutes we haven't we haven't seen any naked people or had any deaths so something has to happen and it, it, they very easily could have done this in like a reshoot or something um but yeah basically he has a little trouble getting out of the plane it's fine he he gets there okay but he does meet this lady on the ground who's supposed to be his point of contact uh who's played by an actress that, that her name escapes me uh, it's a uh, julia nixon who's apparently singaporean american and uh i don't know if she was asked to give this this performance but th this character is a little frustrating <laughs> because her line deliveries it's it's almost it's almost all her line deliveries but on top of that you have a cinematographer deciding to shoot her in the old way uh, that would be soft focus and intense eye light like just like blinding light on her like only fixated on her for every like face shot we get of her so she looks she's excessively made up uh, she's like she's like absurdly beautiful and made up while she's carrying an assault rifle and traipsing through the jungle. So she, immediately something's amiss here. Um, but her line delivery is basically she's feigning a Vietnamese accent and dropping words like every other word to sound to intensify the accent, but just comes across as extraordinarily phony and a little bit insulting, honestly. <laughs> it, it's incredibly offensive. 
And yeah. Yeah. And, and actually when you mentioned to that lighting to um, adds an additional element that really whitewashes her to boot. So it, it really, she, even though she's Hoppa, I believe like it very much just kind of makes her look like a very white woman with slightly slanty eyes to highlight that she's Vietnamese and then the horrible, horrible accent. Yeah, the, the accent is what really killed it for me. But on top of that, like I said, this movie from a visual standpoint actually irritates me from time to time because clearly they, they had production values, but I think they were not allocated in the wisest of ways uh, in some instances. And a lot of it was like lighting decisions and like uh, the the props and the sets are all pretty good. So are the pyrotechnics, but just the staging of the action is a little haphazard. It, I hate to to beat on Stallone again, but it's a little uh, original cut of Rocky Four because I I'm I'm going to be there day one when he eventually puts out his director's cut of Rocky Four. But one thing that always struck me about the editing of Rocky Four and why I would imagine doing a recut of it is so fucking easy is because I think they shot miles and miles and miles and miles of film for that for that shoot where they just shot everything. 50 fucking times and he just has like an entire warehouse of footage to work with because the editing of that is just like just just throw it in there just <laughs> like we we have it just throw it in there and it it feels a little disjointed a little haphazard there's very little regard put into continuity and by the way i love rocky four like i really really love rocky four i'm just pointing out something that's I don't think every you five argue minutes this. of it is a or is a montage. I mean, obviously, he has a ton of stuff on the floor. If he was able to put together a montage every five minutes, well, and a montage like especially with like contemporary filmmakers, sometimes I get persnickety about that stuff because I do think of it as a little bit of a crutch. Honestly, like cutting to music is always going to be easier than not. Um, and I actually do get a little offended sometimes when I see excessive use of, of montage or licensed music in particular, but cutting the film together in that way probably made sense of something that maybe didn't make sense when they were filming it. Because part of, part of filming something is having a vision of what it's supposed to end up as by the time you get to the editing stage. And I don't think they had that. (laughs) 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 Um, but fun, uh, fun uh, casting bit here. Um, we uh, we head up river because it's a Vietnam story. That's, that's apparently what you do. <laughs> but we uh, we contract the services of a pirate who is played by a fellow by the name of Dana Lee, uh, who if you have watched American television or American cinema in the past several decades, you have seen this man. Uh, he's he's been in everything. In fact, uh, one of, like one of the prominent bad guys in this is in Lethal Weapon Four with him. <laughs> but uh, this guy, Matt, you probably best know him as uh, the head of the country club in the later seasons of Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> um, oh yeah, huh. yeah, yeah. I, I, no I, I knew you. I knew you'd remember that. But uh, he, uh, he's one of those those Asians in Hollywood that is asked to be every race. <laughs> like he is everything. Um, in uh, in Curb Your Enthusiasm, he's Japanese. In this, he's Vietnamese. He is actually Chinese, as far as I understand. Um, but yeah, it was funny seeing him as just like a like a drunk ass pirate here, where he doesn't really do much other than be a slime mall. But it's like, hey, I know that guy. He's been in everything. Um, but yeah, by the time we get to the halfway point of the movie, uh, Rambo does infiltrate 
a Vietnamese camp uh, and he does discover POWs. And like Matt had pointed out, uh, his object, his actual mission is just to photograph stuff. But Rambo's not having it because it's 1985, goddammit, and Head's got a roll. Uh, so he actually infiltrates the place. Um, but by the way, um, the what 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 did you think of his his dialogue exchanges with the, the gal up to this point with Cole? I've seen this movie more times than I can count, and I barely remember any dialogue other than the last scene. So, well, that's the most important one, and mostly all she does there is reiterate stuff she said earlier in the movie. So, if you need to remember anything, I guess that's. <laughs> No, I, what what I do recall actually is that she drops a line, or he mentions the line about being expendable. Yeah, and which obviously later on in Stallone's filmography, <laughs> clearly there he had a vision, and I think that that's where it's fascinating knowing that James Cameron was involved. Um, and if I under from what I've read in my very limited research before we sat down here is that James Cameron kind of had this more conceived of as like essentially a buddy action flick that he was supposed to have somebody along with him on this mission. And um, I think that this is where Stallone's vision kind of diverges. I think Stallone, a lot of what he ended up putting in the Expendables was more in line with what he would have done if he had full control of Rambo 2. And I think that Cameron kind of grounds it in a sense. I don't know if that's the right word to describe Rambo too, to be honest. But uh, I'll I'll get into Cameron uh, when we get a little bit further in the film because, like like I said, there are some there are some aspects to this film that are definitely spawned from his mind um, more so than Stallone's. It just it fits too perfectly, is what I'm getting at. But um, yeah, I, I mean, it was again 1985, and this this was the dawn of the action hero. Uh, so in some ways, I guess this movie kind of set the template for how these movies go, where it's like um, James Bond actually is a really good example, because something that maybe maybe not everybody knows is that a lot of those earlier James Bond movies in particular, uh, the conclusion, um, you know, that scene in Wayne's World when he opens the door and there's just like a, a room full of people doing crazy James Bond shit. And he's just like, I don't know. I just always wanted to open a door to see people doing James Bond shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the early James Bond movies, it would end like an Austin Powers movie or um, I forget what the was it Dr. Zhivago or whoever at the big pie fight or Dr. Strangelove. I can't remember which doctor it was. But anyway, um, early James Bond movies with would usually end with him calling the cavalry. And a whole bunch of troops showing up and fighting the bad guys. And it would and it would be like a G.I. Joe cartoon where it's the good guys and the bad guys shooting each other, or like Thunderball. It's like an it's a scuba fight between two rival factions. But then you get into the later James Bond movies after we've been living in action hero world for a few years or whatever, you start to see a lot less of that. It starts to become a one-man mission, basically. And this movie like I said, the reason why we're talking about the beginning of the month is that you could argue, I guess, that this kind of set that template a little bit where it's it's no longer a war movie. It's literally just Rambo shooting Vietnam or punching Vietnam in the face or rather stabbing Vietnam with, with a knife and then looking at the compass at the hilt. <laughs> it's like, how do I get to Russia? <laughs> but, um, uh, fun fact, though, like, I've been pointing to this movie. I've been citing this movie as like like a prototype 
uh, for for this brand of action movie. But it's not entirely true because uh, the Cannon Group um, very very slyly uh, put out Chuck Norris's missing missing in action sometime in 1984 before the release of this film. I believe they were in production at the same time, but there's a reason they're called the go-go boys uh, if if they catch wind of something really big happening in hollywood like a potential trend they will beat you to the punch um was i forget which uh, uh i can't remember the name of the dance it wasn't it wasn't bachata but it, it was a, a dance sensation out of south america that uh, they actually had an instance where they had like a deep impact armageddon scenario but with a fucking latin dance movie <laughs> where they were, they were racing um, to to get their movie out first, but um, yeah, actually Chuck Norris's movie came out first um, in 1984. But um, yeah, Matt basically summed it up: uh, Rambo, you not expendable. Um, <laughs> that yeah, it, it, yeah, that that's an exact quote too. Yeah, yeah, Matt just made a face, and we all know why because that's uh, that's not good. Um, but yeah, she uh, she gets him to where he needs to go, and they do free the prisoners, or I think it's just one guy actually. Um, but yeah, Rambo does the thing where he infiltrates the camp, which, uh, by the way, we had a minor action scene on, on the river where we blew up a patrol boat. Um, again, this is one of those keep busy action sequences. Um, like I said, this is actually not foreign to the Rambo series. They really are bottom heavy when it comes to the actual action aspect of things. Um, one thing I, I like actually about some of the, some of the Rambo movies is the, similar to like metal gear or something like the early goings of the movie sometimes in, like emphasize like covert action a little bit like even rambo 4 and rambo 3 do this as well where um in about the midway point of the movie there's like a a covert infiltration of a camp and so there's you know there is bloodlighting and stuff but it's not like outright mayhem and chaos um, so it has a nice build up to it i guess where it's like we're saving the fireworks for the end. We'll, we'll get there. It's only ninety minutes long, <laughs> but um, the real twist of the movie, and you know, they actually do have a twist here um, that you should have seen coming if if you followed any of the visual storytelling that we've hinted at earlier. Um, is that when Rambo is calling for extraction, uh, they send a helicopter out there, and then Charles Napier kicks everyone out of the comms room and uh, tells the helicopter to leave because. Secretly, uh, am I understanding correctly? He basically, he was operating under the assumption that there were no POWs and that the mission would just be a bust and then everybody would go home. Yeah, the, the goal was supposed to be that he needed to provide evidence for government officials to basically make a declaration to the American public that there are no POWs. They're all gone. They're, they're all either dead or missing in action and forget it. Stop talking about it. We're not going to create a Delta force to go rescue anybody. We're not going to declare war on Vietnam again. That that's the underlying thing. There, there's a big back and forth um, that again, it, it's funny that how it straddles this line of somehow being very political, but at the same time, totally removed from politics and that the people that you would assume would be the ones demanding war or actually saying like we don't want to go to war we want nothing to do it so it's really really a bizarre thing when you think about it but yeah anyway. it is kind of funny but it, it charles napier comes across as just like a guy who um you 
actually get this from the villain in Rambo 3, who, by the way, like you could actually spin that guy as being a little bit sympathetic because the villain in Rambo 3, he just wants to go home. Like He just wants to go back to the USSR and call it good. And in order in order to do that, he needs to report some good news to the Politburo. And Richard Crenna won't give it to him. And he's like, it's actually um, it brought to mind uh, Agent Smith uh, from The Matrix, where it's like Agent Smith has that exchange with Lawrence Fishburne, um, where he's like, I need to get out of this place. <laughs> it sucks here, even though I'm a program. Um, but yeah, Charles Napier just he comes across as just like a I don't know, like a a shitty employee <laughs> just wants to do a shit job and go home. <laughs> yeah, it's one thing I was going to say, like that it kind of like cracks me up in hindsight because it's so poorly done. But like, what did you think of like some of the shots being clearly like ripped off from better Vietnam era movies? Like, like obviously the riverboat thing is done in there to, immediately put you to apocalypse now this is why i really wish kyle was here actually but yeah he would have a lot to say about that but even like the helicopter shots are very reminiscent of the the famous sequence in platoon when willem dafoe is making his rush towards it like actually some of them are almost shot for shot like identical so and then obviously the chopper too again apocalypse now later um that we'll get to but yeah what did you think about some of those shots well i mean it's it's inarguably like paying homage to or or at least taking reference from um i it, it's kind of funny because it's like one of those things where george p cosmatos is not a he's not a high art filmmaker his son actually appears to be uh, panos cosmatos uh, only has two films under his belt at the moment i believe he worked on his dad's films like i think he was on the set of tombstone um panos has done a uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy. Uh, I've only seen the latter and I was massively impressed with it. Like, I think, I think he has a future. Um, but George, uh, <laughs> funny enough, he is not a stranger to the show. Uh, the movie of his that we, we have reviewed was of unknown origin, uh, AKA that movie where Peter Weller fights a rat for two hours. <laughs> uh, and Leviathan is also on his filmography as is Cobra. Um, he's, he's not a high art filmmaker, uh, but you know, you, you imitate the things you like and you imitate the things that people who are much more talented than you do. Um, so I'm guessing he was somewhere in the jungle and he was like, well, we got to do some helicopter shit. <laughs> like what other movies have used helicopters? Oh, there's a whole bunch of them and they're way better than this one's going to be. Um, and again, the, the cinematography in this movie doesn't strike me as terribly empty ambitious um it's more just kind of like get the job done shots where where i don't think there was a whole lot of inspiration or art uh behind where the camera was placed or how it was going to move um but framing aside and like camera coordination and stuff aside uh, the editing actually is not half bad um in particular like the structural editing of it the movie does have legs it does move but but the actual like shot to shot editing uh, does have a nice flow to it. Like it doesn't feel like, like a confused effort or an uninspired one. So it, even though the shots are kind of raggedy when compared to some of the other higher profile Vietnam movies of, of the era, um, 
it's it's okay like uh, it you can tell that it's it's a little probably a lot cheaper in fact um and loosely coordinated like they probably just told the there there were like two brothers as far as i know that did pretty much all the helicopter stuff in hollywood for several decades they probably just told those guys just go nuts do some stuff we'll film it all we'll figure it out <laughs> i'm guessing it was that um but not to the scale of like apocalypse now or something where it's just like okay we're gonna film the fucking war five times every day for the next month <laughs> okay yeah yeah i was just wondering because like i said my the whole thing like my impression this movie as a kid was always just that fear of the revisionist vision of it and almost because they use these shots that were so similar to these great anti-war movies it almost makes me wonder like the effect it has long term of somebody who's maybe seen both you know apocalypse now and rambo 2 but wasn't fraction of as engaged as obviously like somebody like yourself was and so it'd be real easy to kind of blend both films into kind of a similar thing Mm. And then you're left with the kind of this impression of like, it's all everything you saw in Apocalypse Now, except for all the Americans do is kick ass. Like when he goes through and blows up a whole fucking village with a helicopter and somehow manages not to touch a single POW with a stray bullet. Um, he just wipes it to the floor with pure precision versus when Apocalypse Now, when you have the famous Flay of the Valkyries sequence where it's just showcasing like the obscene amount of firepower that these things possess and just the control chaos of it all when they get deployed or you know the riverboat sequences being so integral integral to uh apocalypse now just like the mood and the slow pacing versus the stallone one which is just like high action super intensity racing you know shooting rockets constantly like where it kind of blends and again it, it's no longer this constant fear of like what lies in this jungle it could be a tiger. It could be, you know, a native tribe that's never been exposed to modern humanity. It could be the enemy, you know, so you're constantly on edge in apocalypse now versus this one. It's just like, everything's the enemy and I only kill the enemy and I only save the good guys and fuck everything else. You know, you kill the enemy, whoever that happens to be. <laughs> <laughs> that one sequence made me a lifelong fan of that show yeah folks at home if you're not aware that is a reference to daria um and forevermore i think i saw that when i was not even 10 years old for some reason <laughs> that really stuck with me <laughs> and of course now that i'm adult i, I think back on i'm like oh dear that is dark <laughs> but but at the time it just sounded funny <laughs> but um i i get where you're coming from and i'm glad you brought that up but uh I didn't I really didn't know when this was going to come up, but I obviously been itching to talk about for a while because I, I always get this way. But um, the secret weapon of this movie and arguably this entire franchise is the score. Um, that's that's where I would push back a little bit, is that a major difference between all of the movies you mentioned, except. I mean, Flay of the Valkyries is I, I think I think any any idiot would be able to notice that it's like okay they're do, they're doing something with the music here the tone is a mismatch with what's what's playing out visually i i don't think you have to pay that much attention to get wise to that that's satirical in some way but um rambo the entire franchise except for um the fourth and the fifth which are scored by brian tyler um 
were scored by Jerry Goldsmith, who is in my probably top three of best film composers of all time. Um, he's passed away, unfortunately, and I re- he's what we're missing in in film scores. Honestly, he he's what we're missing uh, because this recycled garbage we've been getting over the past few years. There is good stuff coming from good people, but it's it's not in the movies that I like to watch. <laughs> Whereas Jerry Goldsmith, you could just put him in in the chair and he would give you something fantastic. And to me, he's he's adventure, like he's the adventure score guy. And because Stallone's dialogue is so limited in the earlier Rambo movies, he gets a lot more chatty in the third one. Um, and then he kind of regresses a little bit, thankfully. But in the third one, you know, that was Stallone probably pulling some strings. And be like, yeah, I want to talk more. You know, I'm a funny guy. It's like, but you're not supposed to be funny. <laughs> Jesus, you're Rambo. <laughs> but <laughs> <It's> like, what? <laughs> but in fact, he has some quips in that movie there. <laughs> They're definite Stallone dad, like dad humor isms, but <laughs> anyway, Jerry Jerry Goldsmith's score in this movie, much like the explosion that kicks off the entire experience, tells you how you're supposed to feel, and it dispels any of any of the potential danger or intense or unwarranted intensity. Rather, it tells you this is. This is a rousing action moment. You're supposed to be engaged, but you're not supposed to be worried about Rambo. He'll be fine. It, it, rem- it, yeah, sorry to interrupt. It, it's very reminiscent, actually, of like old cowboy uh, movies and stuff like that that I recall like watching yeah. and like old, obviously the old like uh, Green Berets, John Wayne sort of like action <laughs> war dramas, but like just that very over the top, almost like campy to quality. To yeah, it. campy is the right word where it's it's absurd. To a certain degree where it's like this is this is exciting and rousing to the degree that it's like i can't even really take it seriously anymore which in the case of a action movie dispels some of like the i don't know the intensity of the violence because i mean these movies all have a body count but if you if you put the pieces together like if you put the right music and and the right amount of blood into the squib <laughs> um, it instead of like creating a horrifying sensation in your viewer it creates like a yeah <laughs> moment and i i want to say jerry goldsmith is one of the biggest contributions to this entire franchise because his his rambo theme endures to this day brian tyler very wisely kept it retained it for rambo four and five um and all the action beats and even just some of the transitional tracks where it's just it's literally just rambo traipsing through the jungle it's all so well composed and and put together in such a fashion that it makes for a much more engaging experience than many, many, many other films that would imitate this exact format. Um, even in the same year of release <laughs> as this film uh, tried to get to. And it, in terms of production values, you know, we've been critical of the, of the cinematography. Having a score like this is really the difference maker for me personally. I was going to say actually a, a great comparison of it um, since we're kind of going down a road of nostalgia is um, I remember there was a Disney feature on uh, Peter and the Wolf where they animated an equivalent uh, or basically like what you're supposed to be seeing when you're listening to that score. And that's what this movie is very reminiscent of when you highlight the sound, the music behind it. It's like all of the emotion you need to feel is hundred percent the score. 
you don't need to hear any dialogue to know what's going on. You don't need to know who the good guys are, or the bad guys are, because it's very obvious and it's clearly highlighted by whatever high, you know, peaks come, you know. And yeah, that there's high intensity violence, but it's done in a manner where, you know, it's so tame by today's standards. Like I would almost argue this could almost be a borderline PG movie by today's standards if you remove some of the torture elements of it. Yeah, actually, the, there's there's no like delimbings or decapitations or head explosions. It's just basic squibs. And most of the explosions, you don't even see people. It's just vehicles going up or straw huts, rather. <laughs> um, so it, by today's standards, it's very tame in terms of violence. Um, and like you said, other than the torture stuff, which Rambo does get captured at this point in the movie um, because the helicopter bails on him and he and his POW, who wasn't supposed to be there, uh, get recaptured um, and then he gets like put in the the water world poo pit <laughs> it's like i'm pretty sure kevin costner saw this poo pit and he was like i want to be in one of those <laughs> and um then of course the electrocution that happens right after which again metal gear solid revolver ocelot like definite reference to this film um but if you took out those two instances of torture and of course the the knife on his face um, which we should highlight in a second here um the the movie's fairly tame but it's around this time where we're introduced uh to a it's apparently the main thread of the movie so we have we have the vietnamese like the north vietnamese army or whatever just the north vietnamese regulars uh who apparently are maintaining all the pow's and like taking them all over the country and putting them in different camps so we can't find them but then when rambo is captured a helicopter lands and a bunch of Russians show up. <laughs> and as like, I think it's appropriate that we mention the score here because they have theme music that tells you like, based on like the deep brassiness of it, it's like, Oh, not only are they Eastern European, they're bad. <laughs> so again, the movie is telling you what you're supposed to feel even before they've opened their mouths. Um, but yeah, this is where we get introduced to our, like, I guess he's the antagonist. I mean, you could argue that Charles Napier's actually the main villain of the movie but uh this guy is played by what's his face steven burkoff who has played this exact role a few times uh, he did this in a bond movie um and he was also the villain in beverly hills cop if i remember correctly um and i don't know about you matt but like <sighs> is this accent Russian? Because <laughs> I was getting a little bit of a German vibe from it from time to time. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be shocked if that was intentional. I mean, I mean, look, if you had a bad Russian accent back in this era of action filmmaking, like there was no shortage of work as you clearly highlighted with this particular actor. But yeah, it's it was funky. Like it's, it's not good, whatever it was intended to be. Um, yeah. He sounds I, like the butler in uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. <laughs> if you are Scottish, then I am Mickey Mouse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a really strange reveal, to be honest. And, you know, again, this is like kind of you're in the midst of the Cold War. So I get it. It's it's cheap heat to introduce the Russians. And <laughs> in a way, it kind of excuses the whole like it removes all the elements of like any sense of holding on to the bullshit that I've been talking about of like lingering thoughts and feelings of the Vietnam War. It's like now you're just like, ah, now we know who the real enemy is. Fuck Russia, because that's, of course, what everyone in the cinema is thinking at this time. <laughs> 
So yeah, they, they get revealed, they torture him and they demand that he must call his superiors and tell them to not come and rescue him and not send anybody else. And otherwise they're going to leave everything be, you'll be a prisoner forever, but you know, there's no war, there's no conflict. It's just like, just tell them fuck off. Yeah, you know, the, the events that unfold in the, the last chapter of this movie, I'm pretty sure there would be a response <laughs> of some sort. But again, this is an action fantasy movie in some regards. But um, yeah, they, they have a conversation in a hut and this uh, this USSR colonel, uh, he, he demands that Rambo contact his superiors via radio but in between that they strap him to I think it's a like a metal bed frame that they have hung, hung up on the wall and uh, they electrocute him so Stallone can flex and uh, he has that martyr complex thing he likes to get beat up <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he, he really does like to catch a beating in almost all of his movies he totally no sold the electrical shock treatment though <laughs> Yeah, he he does that. I don't know if it's like a Rambo thing because Rocky generally doesn't do this, but like Rambo does seem to like shake shit off. Just he'll just get he'll be fine. Like like he'll get completely hammered into the ground, and then the next scene he'll be fine. Like even in Rambo three, like he he has this like life and death struggle with a guy who outweighs him by a hundred pounds, and then hard cut to him just like chest puffed out, like walking and quipping, like making stupid jokes with Richard Crenna in the desert. What the fuck? happened it's like the dude punched you in the hole in your midsection and he gave you a bear hug and probably cracked a few ribs and you're fine shit <laughs> but um yeah he gets electrocuted here he gets to flex a lot of muscles and stuff um and then we get uh something that my brother pointed out uh we get something that a lot of people point out is like the the one actual like visual cue that Rambo was actually harmed in this film at some point, um, despite, you know, basically fighting an entire war single-handedly. Um, and Matt, do you want to let the folks at home know what I'm alluding to here? It's they heat up his knife in a hot fire or it is a fire. I, it doesn't matter. It's it's yeah. It's it, they have a hibachi in their, in their <laughs> Yeah. Hand. He takes it <laughs> and he, he cuts a perfectly perfect little scar into the side of Rambo's face. And it's literally the only wound he endures in this whole flick. Yeah. I mean, there's a sequence I think on the boat where he's got some blood on, but it's kind of implied that that was somebody else's. So yeah, this is really the only body damage, like battle damage that you see Rambo uh, gain in this whole movie. So. Yeah. He gets shot at a lot, but this is like, this is like GI Joe rules. Uh, we're, or actually Hot Shots Part 2, which, by the way, uh, makes fun of both Rambo 2 and 3 quite a bit. Uh, I love that movie. <laughs> Where it's like the guy's standing right in front of him and un unloads an entire magazine at him and just, just can't fucking hit him because he's the hero of the movie. <laughs> I was going to say, honestly, you can just, if you want to see know what the action beats of this movie are, just watch the any YouTube compilation of clips from those movies or UHF. And yeah because they do amazing jobs of parroting you know the action of rambo too yeah in fact they do it better <laughs> i hate to say yeah. it. I, I hate to say it like the 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 bit where weird al is flying around in his muscle suit and going whoa <laughs> i i misremembered that because i i've seen that movie probably as many times as i have this one and i remember stallone flying around in that helicopter doing that a whole bunch 
but no, it's only Weird Al. He only does it once. Rambo only goes once, but Weird Al does it over and over and over again. It makes it really fucking funny. <laughs> well, it's that and the fact that anytime he wants to like destroy something, he just barely moves the, like, the <laughs> his flight control stick and presses a button and something blows up instantly. Yeah, so. you know, the pyramids of Giza. The Sphinx, <laughs> the Leaning Tower of Pisa. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> America. <laughs> but um, while Rambo is enduring torture, Ko is like uh, going, she like dressed herself up uh, to infiltrate the camp to try to save him, even though they were supposed to part ways after she showed him where the POW was. And uh, we got a, we got a true blue action hero moment here where Rambo gets on the radio because uh, they threaten the POW instead of him. Um, and <laughs> he says the line, Murdoch, I'm coming for you. <laughs> his uh, arm gets so veiny too when he's gripping that mic. Like, yeah, he, he gets his, his hand gripping the mic like he does each finger individually and it gets its own dedicated camera angle <laughs> we have to see every vein in his forearm pop <laughs> but uh this kicks off uh probably it's one of the better action scenes in the movie honestly this is this is where the movie is about to go full action um but the, the piece of music that plays over the sequence it's really really tightly edited it's a lot of fun because like he he does that he gets wise to the fact that ko is there to like bail him out and he just beats the fuck out of everyone in that room <laughs> and the moment he springs into action jerry goldsmith's score kicks into high gear uh and the the track is called escape from torture and it's been recycled multiple times over two movies because it's that fucking good um but basically they they exfiltrate while blowing things up and shooting everyone in sight by the way the heavy um the the big dude um like the the odd job to the the main colonel guy i recognized him from lionheart he's the uh he's the guy that's uh tracking jean claude down throughout that entire movie nice yeah yeah i, I was glad to see him i was like hey i know that guy <laughs> it was like he's been beat up by other action guys he's kind of like the the sven Oli thorson uh to van damme i guess i think he's I think he's also in a Universal Soldier. I think he's in the bar, like the popcorn fight, as we, as we sometimes call it. I think you're right. Yeah, he has he has a look for sure. Um, but yeah, we we escape and then uh, we get the moment where everything seems cool, and we have the soft lighting on, so it's like okay, everybody's looking really handsome here. It's all chill, and then surprise, <laughs> and Ako uh, gets shot. And uh, we have a tearful farewell. And it's uh, right after she gives him a kiss, and she's essentially pleading that he takes her with him back to America. More uncomfortable shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really awkward because, like, you know, a lot of the theme is supposed to be he's such a patriot. But when you look at it, the total filmography of all the Rambos, he spends quite a bit of time out of the United States. <laughs> like, he actually, like, you know, he, he very much seems to love his country, but like the way she's like, you know, pleading to come with him, like it's his escape from this hellhole. But like in the span of time, like he spends quite a bit of time in Southeast Asia when he's on his downtime, not fighting conflict. So I don't think he minds it that much. Like, yeah, his characterization gets heavily muddled by the time you get to that third one and he's doing the fucking Kali stick fighting uh, in Thailand. It's like, mm, I think. I think this is another Rocky sequel situation where it's like, try again, 
but do better because <laughs> Ram Rambo four corrects that. And it's like, yeah, he should be a boatman and catching snakes for, you know, the fucking zoo or whatever. I was going to say Rocky or Rambo four essentially just does this movie um, over only mm-hmm. way better in every capacity. And, you know, the, I, without <laughs> spinning off into a complete tangent about that one, because you don't have to. It's the same goddamn movie. It just <laughs> happens to be infinitely better in every conceivable way. And there's no Russians. So, well, yeah. And just the characterization, it, it sits much better with me that it takes it takes a lot to get him to, you know, pick up a knife or pick up a weapon again. And even then, he doesn't even agree to do that. He agrees to drive some people to do the thing that in this movie in Rambo two, he was asked to do. He doesn't want any of it. He wants to be left alone. He's had enough of the shit. <laughs> well, and I was going to say like the one thing that the, the adding the Russian element to this movie that works for me, at least is that one of the big things about Rambo in, in all of the films is that like, he never has like a real vendetta against any enemy. Like he's just, he fights whoever's shooting at him. Kind of like he's not, it's like he doesn't have hate a country really you know so it's like in this case like when you introduce the russians now it's technically vietnam and russia and it's like he doesn't have a problem with either of them per se he's just kind of like dealing with individuals which makes it a little easier to digest when he's performing these like heinous violent actions it's like well that guy was a dick who killed my girlfriend or soon-to-be girlfriend he (laughs) deserves to die you know yeah, that's what didn't that's what didn't sit well with me about the third one is that in this one, that line, do we get to win this time? It it hints at the scars that are still present from, you know, lived experience and also the events of the first film. Um, but the third one, it's about him going to save Colonel Troutman. Like it's about him flying to Afghanistan, kicking whoever's ass gets in his way to save his friend. Um, and aiding the Taliban in the process. And, but... Yeah, the, the politics behind that movie are just all sorts of fucky. <laughs> like, in retrospect, it's like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, um, we don't talk much on that one. Yeah, Rambo 3 has a, a really, really bizarre history around it. Like like I said, for, if you if you check all the political stuff at the door, I think from a technical perspective, it's a it's a somewhat superior action film in terms of just raw execution of action sequences. Um, but in terms of like characterization, it's very confusing. Uh, it comes across as maybe Stallone flexing some creative muscles and making it into a little bit of a vanity project. Like I said, he has a lot more dialogue in that movie than any other uh, in this, in the entire franchise. And he also does the weird Lawrence of Arabia shit or like the, the dances with wolf shit with, the Taliban. <laughs> um, it's it's a little bit of a mess, but it's shot better than this movie. That's all I'll say. But um, I'd, I'd like to bring up James Cameron for a minute here, because at this point in the film is where if you didn't know that James Cameron was involved, maybe maybe you could figure it out now. So first thing that that jumped out at me was Charles Napier's character may as well be Burke from aliens where it's it's the suit that's surrounded by rough and tough soldier types that has some sort of side agenda of his own that seems to fit to me um but in addition to that there's a thing that james cameron likes to do that i think like i think we all secretly really love but we don't get it all the time so like because he 
because he has that in his his bag of tricks that's part of why he's so successful it's i call it uh back to the war where i mean this movie begins with that where it's like john we need you to go back hey let's take a look at aliens hey alan ripley we need you to go back and then you take it a step further though and titanic and aliens you have a situation where it seems like the situation's resolved rose gets on the lifeboat uh Ripley gets on the dropship, but wait, I got to go back for Jack and or Newt. But before I do that, I need to grab a bunch of weapons. <laughs> In Rose's case, she gets an axe. In Ellen Ripley's case, she gets a fucking pulse rifle and a flamethrower. Um, and I, I really like that. The idea of like the situation, you, you have a get out of jail free card. You, you can totally just leave right now, but your conscience brings you back. And in, in the case of Rambo 2, we have a situation where I think partially, like, again, if you check the the political shit at the door, part of the structure of this movie that I think makes it work better than some of the other movies is that he's very mission-focused. Where in his mind, from from moment one, his mission was, I'm going to save the POWs. Now that he now that he's confirmed they exist, uh, this is this entire last, like, chunk of the movie like last half hour basically it's just rambo saying i know i have confirmed that the objective exists i'm going to complete the mission <laughs> and that basically means blowing up vietnam <laughs> and then i just love his his attitude when he lands the chopper finally and like all the pow's are being escorted out he doesn't look at anybody he's just like i finished the mission now i gotta go chew out murdoch <laughs> but it's oh. It's it's him being like objective focused. Where it's like he knows what he has to do. Like you said, he doesn't care about Russia. He doesn't care about Vietnam. It's just there, there are people there that I need to get. That's why I would. That's why I was brought here. I'm, I'm going to do the thing I was told to do. And and that's kind of what I was trying to say. And it's hard to formulate the words, but it's essentially in that sense, you don't feel bad for anybody. He blows the shit out of. Because, you know, it's 100% only focused on rescuing these poor POWs who've been stranded for, you know, however many years in this jungle setting. It's like, it's not a conflict with a country. He's not fighting a war. He's on a rescue mission. And these are bad people. They're by just the fact that they're holding prisoners. So, like, one of my favorite sequences, the first person he blows up when he's in the helicopter is just some guy smoking a cigarette on a bridge. <laughs> and he's, the helicopter's mile, it's seemingly miles away. Like, he's approaching it. And the guy can't hear it or see it, so it must be far off. And he just blows the shit out of him with a missile. <laughs> this poor guy didn't have a chance. And it always cracks me up because, it's, again, you don't feel bad in the slightest because the music's all uplifting. And at the same time, you're like, yeah, fuck that guy. He's... he's <laughs> It's like, I got no problem with Vietnam, but really, fuck that guy in particular. See what I meant? It, it, it's it's an oral fixation thing. Like, if, if some guy is putting things in his mouth <laughs> when bad things are happening around him, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> I think it's worth highlighting, too, even though her role is, is terrible in many, many ways. But Co, uh, another theme for Cameron is that she actually is a soldier in this and, like, she's not just a damsel in distress. And even though when she's brutally killed in the moment of emotion with Rambo, like, you know, the whole time throughout, she's more than capable of handling her own. Um, I think he only really rescues her briefly on the boat, but even then she still contributes. Like, it's not like he saves everybody all on his own and does every component of the action. So 
that was kind of neat but when she gets killed she gets killed like there's no question that she got blown to shit so yeah she gets shot up and he he like makes a burial mound for her um very similar to like conan the barbarian uh when valeria gets uh, shot with a arrow made of a snake <laughs> yeah that movie's awesome someday we'll talk about it on the podcast but actually funny enough when she died um this is a deep cut but um based on his filmography i don't think it's off base to say that it reminded me well it made me think of ninja scroll a little bit um because there's a i think her name is kagiro uh it's you know female ninja that's helping jubei throughout that entire movie and uh, she does eat shit at the end of that movie. And uh, she has a headband um, that he takes from her when she's dead as like a memento. And Ko has a like a jade necklace or something that he takes. And he does actually hold on to for at least one of the sequels um, as a memento. But the um, headband, too, I thought was made from her. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it may have been taken from like her dress or something. But yeah, um, I'm pretty sure it is. But yeah, it reminded me of that. So I wouldn't be surprised if... Uh, ninja scroll borrowed that beat or something but um after he buries her we get a sequence that i remember you telling me about when i was young you're like this is this is where rambo goes full kill crazy and it's this glorious montage of him just stealth it's like you're playing a batman arkham game or like like metal gear solid but with the the stealth camouflage you're just beating the fuck out of guards and harassing them they can't do anything about it basically it's like a a montage like a rapid fire montage of rambo doing every stealth kill in the book on like 20 poor fucking guys that stand no chance and this is what matt was talking about where it's like somebody saw that first first blood movie and had the idea in the back of their mind that's like you know, wouldn't it be interesting if all the stuff that Troutman just talked about, we actually got to see? And it, t- it took an hour to get there, but thankfully the the entirety of the remainder of this film is just Rambo killing the fuck out of people. <laughs> it's, it's literally a 50-50 mixture of Vietnamese soldiers and Russian soldiers. So you it happened so rapidly that you can't even like, really latch on to it you're just like you see somebody it must be the enemy they must die very much like a video game in that regard where it's just like you don't have to think about what happens if i shoot this person is that good is that bad no it's ah, enemy kill him they got a gun <laughs> bad yeah no it, it has a really infectious like momentum to it that i think again that's one of the stronger parts of this movie that make it memorable is that when once once they kill his lady friend he stops talking like all he says is just like get in the chopper go get the... <laughs> and then the rest of it's just him shooting people and blowing the fuck out of things so it's like 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 we said about the the setup for this movie it's like once he's once his boots hit the ground he's in mission mode but this is like not only mission mode but like revenge mode or, or like he got an extra push in the form of you know somebody who kind of you're right, lady. You <laughs> kind of had some feelings for it. And so he's now- been locked up for like 10 years. Yeah. He's, <laughs> and before he's- that, he was wandering the country as a vagrant. And before he's- that, he was a POW. <laughs> like, that's literally probably the only intimacy he's experienced in almost 20 years. He's a little backed up, just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is this is Rambo in a hormonal rage, <laughs> like taking it out on the entire country of Vietnam. Um, but like I said, the dialogue just stops because because the movie is wise enough to know that there's nothing more to say. 
Like we know he's mad. We know he knows what he has to do. So basically this is him kind of flipping the bird to everybody in the office back home that sent him to do this mission where it's like they have millions of dollars of resources and all sorts of equipment and stuff, but they're just not willing to do this thing. So I'm basically, basically it's, it, it is like a big fuck you where it's like, I, I could fucking do this. It just needed motivation. So, so Rambo goes out and just does the damn thing. Uh, you know, political consequences be damned, but yeah, this, it's just nothing but action from here on out. It's it's him killing people in a variety of glorious ways. Uh, first, like a variety of stealth kills. I love the mud kill. Where he... I was going to say, which mud kill, which mud action <laughs> sequence do you prefer? It's not a mud kill technically, but Predator or this one? I uh, well, Predator was more novel because it was an actual plot point. Um, but just seeing Stallone and that that beat where he opens his eyes, where he's come, he's covered in head head to toe in mud, and then he like pulls out his knife and shanks a dude from behind. That 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 was a really cool thing to add into that montage because there there are many kills that happen there. It's mostly him grabbing people and Batmaning them and stuff. But that one stands out because it's like, wow, you went to a lot of trouble for just that one guy. <laughs> like all those other guys, you just like half-assed it, but that guy, you got real muddy. But, um. Predator, though, it it actually is part of the story. Um, Fair and enough. Also, and also the the makeup job on Arnold was a little better, I think, because because the mud is is it's it's a little like like Hollywood muddy on Stallone, where it's like it's like too brown, where it's like it that looks it like kind of looks like a poop monster. <laughs> I, I was trying to pussyfoot around that, but yes, he does look like a, a shit monster. <laughs> I mean, we have watched Monster, so I mean. <laughs> We we know our shit monsters. So let's be honest. Yeah, folks at home, if you're not aware, monster monsterd is an actual film that my brother subjected me to at some point. I actually do still have the files for that video. I I promise you, dear brother, I will publish that someday because that deserves that deserves to be seen. It belongs in a museum. <laughs> and there go any political aspirations I may have had. Oh well, uh, I can uh, I can put like a Kenshiro from Fist of the North Star face on you or something. <laughs> I can superimpose that on you so nobody will know. But um, yeah, uh, he sets fire to a field. You know, I'm sure that those farmers were plenty happy about that. <laughs> I, I like when he gets revenge for Ko. Where that's like to me the penultimate like '80s action hero sequence where he's standing in front of a waterfall. And the guy who murdered her in cold blood is sees him in the distance, has the drop on him, has his AK or whatever, a full clip and like fire unloads the whole clip and somehow manages to completely miss him. Despite the fact that Rambo is just posing in front of this waterfall, Rambo then proceeds to pull out his bow and arrow with now equipped with explosive arrows and slowly draw back, draw it back. And this whole time, the guy has gone from unloading his whole clip in the AK to then pulling out his sidearm and still shooting and still completely missing. And I think he almost unloads that, at which point he almost begins to flee. And that's when Rambo lets it fly and he explodes into a million pieces. Uh, that is so 80s action to me. Yeah, it, it's a it's a glorious beat because it, it's like a, you know, larger than life action hero moment where it's like it, this is completely absurd but but this is really fucking fun um especially because it's that guy 
it's the the fellow who actually was responsible for shooting Ko, and we did see him like harassing the POWs earlier. So it's been encoded into our brains that this guy, this guy's gonna get it. It's gonna be really bad. <laughs> like it's it's like anybody who is is a is an asshole in a Spielberg movie. It's like ooh. He's gonna get. He's gonna get a unique death. <laughs> well, I was just gonna say, like, he, despite the high body count, like, again, I think it's been said in worse words, but it's it's one of those things where the only real people who get a death where it seems personal are this guy and the big heavy. What is it, Lugosh or whatever? Like, <laughs> sure, yeah, we'll go with Lugosh. I am Lugosh. <laughs> But no, but it's true. Like those are the only ones where it, it really feels personal. Like everyone else, it's either like he's just frantically running away and just kind of spraying bullets in their general direction or they're about to reveal his location. So he just instinctually has to take him out. You know, it's still killing, but it doesn't feel like he, again, is directly saying like, you must die. Like the only people he does it with are in these two instances. And even with the guy who tortured him, that's really only a, that's like a survival moment where they're on the helicopter fighting. And it's like, he has to do that in order to, you know, survive. Yeah. It's incidental rather than malicious. Um, and in this case, it, it, it works a little better. Um, Cause in some other Rambo movies, he, he goes like full hardcore revenge mode and, and uh, really relishes the moment a bit. Um, such that like damages his character maybe a little bit but in this one yeah it like i said mission focused it's like you're just in you're in the way you you got to die because i got to get those guys on the chopper um but yeah the, the guy that gets hit by the arrow that, that was i can't remember man there's so many things that made fun of this movie that i know better than this movie <laughs> like uhf and and hot shots part two i can't remember which one parodied that moment in particular but i think it was uhf um, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> but, they both did it, but uh, I believe it was the chicken and hot shots. Yes, he shoots him with, and UHF he w- literally walks up to him to where he's an inch away before. Yeah, he the, the back guy it. just keeps shooting at him and just can't hit him. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're right. Uh, the chi- I forgot about the chicken. <laughs> the chicken was all over the trailers for that movie, but um, that's probably the most violent moment in the movie too, because it it is a man exploding. It's again pretty fucking cool <laughs> but um yeah and and uh the explosion on the waterfall when he jumps off is it's a it's a nifty stunt although you can tell that they were shot on two different days where it's like okay we're, first we're gonna do you jumping with the little with the little fire and then we're gonna do the big explosion when no one's there because we don't want to kill you um but yeah we have the the helicopter fight where he he gets a hold of a helicopter by like uh, playing possum in the water and then whoever was piloting that chopper decided to go like all the way to the point where the skids are like in the water basically because he he like dolphins out of out of the water and onto the helicopter yeah yeah that was uh bizarre but it's necessary to get to yeah, the conclusion it, logistically he needed to get in a vehicle so he could get to the camp without having to you know have a whole montage of him traipsing through the jungle it, again momentum action mode shit has to happen because we're not talking anymore there's nothing left to say but he gets on the chopper he has big old fist fight with the big heavy dude uh he tosses him out of the chopper uh, it's, it's not a particularly violent death it actually feels very reminiscent of like a a fight with a big ugly and name indian name any indiana jones movie it feels very similar to that um 
And in fact, like I said, we get basically a repeat of this exact sequence, just minus the chopper, but an even bigger guy in the third movie <laughs> because you know Stallone likes Stallone doesn't like to quit after that first pitch. He's got to he's got to take a few more swings. He's got to get it right someday, uh, <laughs> even if it takes a lifetime. But he uses the chopper to to fly to the POW camp, and like Matt had said, obliterates an entire village and somehow doesn't hit. And any of the POWs, I don't know how he identified the building they were in. He was never, he was never anywhere nearby. He was just pelting the place with fucking rockets. Um, but he does rescue the POWs. And very shortly thereafter, he takes off. And by the way, uh, there is a Russian helicopter that's, of course, um, like of the, the beefy variety to be visually imposing. Real quick, I, I will say when he rescues the POWs, I always feel bad because there's one in particular as they're loading up into this thing. And then mind you, these folks are supposed to have been trapped for what, 10 plus years. And <laughs> right as they're getting on the helicopter, somebody sprays gunfire. I mean, one of them gets shot in the back and I've always felt so awful for that character. Where it's like, yay, freedom. Ah, yeah. I I've always noticed that too. And it, God, it must suck to be that guy. But upon my most recent watching, I think he made it. Like, like they're still like tending to him while they're while they're escaping. So I, th I think he's supposed to have survived. I think he did too. It was just fun, a funny <laughs> sequence work because they really do try to make it look like they're all grimy and they've been trapped for all these years. And it's like they finally see an end in sight, and it's just like ah, shot in the back. <laughs> it's just like I can walk again. Ah, my legs. <laughs> it's like something akin to that, but. Um, this helicopter, I don't know Russian helicopters, I'm sorry, but I will say this. I think the helicopter uh, Rambo is flying is a Huey, which is a little weird because um, that's an American helicopter, I believe. I don't know if they have those in Vietnam. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they stole some at some point, so I guess you could swing it that way, but I'm pretty sure the Russians were using it. And again, that speaks to maybe the budget range of the movie. Where it's like, we, we'll use what we got. <laughs> it's like, we can only afford one Russian-esque helicopter, so we'll just use what we got in the neighborhood. <laughs> I, I still argue that a lot of that is to, to kind of cultivate that memory of previous Vietnam movies in, in the audience's mind while they're watching it. So I can but. see that, because I mean, the, the Hueys are the ones you saw doing like strafing runs and stuff and all the war footage. Well, um, you want to see the Americans, the good guys fucking up shit. Like that's why you're watching Rambo too. And so, you know, it would look a little awkward if he's in a Russian helicopter. Yeah, it would look a little awkward for sure. And um, it also gives an, an opportunity to grab an American rifle too, while he's at it. Uh, he, he gets another M60 because that's, that's the image that was on all the posters uh, twice as big and twice as ugly on the Italian versions. <laughs> I, I love those those old Italian schlock action movie posters where it's like it's always like lovingly hand painted and stuff. But like Red Scorpion was like the the big one where it's, I don't think that was an Italian film, but definitely borrows stuff from Rambo. Where it's like we're gonna have a big dumb fucking gun on the cover because that worked for Rambo two and three and one, <laughs> but. Some of the ones they did in like those Italian knockoff movies, it's just like, I don't even know what I'm looking at. It has like four barrels and like, and like the bullets are coming out of the ass end of it. <laughs> it's like, clearly it's just something fabricated in someone's imagination, but that's what was selling at the time. So 
give the people what they want, especially back in the day when you didn't have internet, so you couldn't actually determine if it was a good movie or not. It's just like, ooh, look at that big gun. I'm going to pay money to go see it. <laughs> but um, the, the helicopter here, the Russian one, uh, like I said, I don't know Russian helicopters. It looks like uh, a hind. Again, Metal Gear Solid. <laughs> Very similar. Where it's the bad guy helicopter. But uh, I was never a big fan of how he defeats the quote-unquote bad uh, Russian guy here. Where basically they have uh, admittedly pretty cool aerial chase. Uh, not on the level of, like, say, Mission Impossible Fallout. Uh, that's a totally different beast. And they have $100 million more dollars to work with, if not two. Um, but basically... Rambo lands the thing and then plays possum. He gets hit. And yeah, as he's, it looks like he's crashing and he manages to have it sitting so low to the ground that the, the main Russian big bad just assumes that he's grounded or, you know, crashed. And yeah, it's really, this one always bugged me because this is like a level it was already bad enough that he instantly hops in this helicopter despite having been in prison for, you know, however many years and just instantly is just like an expert at flying it around, which whatever, we can deal with that. It's a stupid action movie, but this is like an expert level helicopter technique that it's like, I can understand the whole, like, no, he's a special forces guy. He knows how to fly a helicopter <laughs> not to do like something like this. Yeah. It, it's staged a little funny. And I, I think the dilemma here was that they wanted to make sure that Rambo got the kill, not one of the POWs like manning the door guns or something, but they couldn't figure out how to do it in a way that like felt slightly personalized where it's like, I mean, one solution would be to have him like tell one of the intensely malnourished and and probably dying POWs fly for a minute so he can hop on one of the door guns or something or like shoot a rocket out the door or something. Um, that that would be a way to have him get like a face to face moment, but yeah, yeah. Even in the third one, taking a second swing at you know bad bad Russian guy in big helicopter, they still fucked it up again. Even worse though, because why would that helicopter run into that tank? Like you're 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 in a flying machine. <laughs> why why would you why would you say ramming speed <laughs> to the tank? <laughs> but yeah, basically he takes like a a law like a disposable like bazooka. And he he goes surprise, <laughs> and he and he shoots out the cockpit into the into the other helicopter. And he blows him up, and that's it. It's it's really simple. <laughs> it's like how did you fall for that? <laughs> like honestly, you should have just blown him the fuck up from the air in your flying in your twirly bird. <laughs> but um, anyway, yeah, we we get back to the base, and like it had alluded to earlier, um, I love Rambo's demeanor when he when he lands because he doesn't stop he doesn't check to see if anybody's okay even troutman like he just like he grabs the m60 off the off the helicopter he just kind of like they give each other a look no words exchanged just a nod just like and that that's actually a thing that um we haven't mentioned here that uh american cinema in particular you know around this time when like jingoistic patriotism and stuff was in vogue uh, a lot of it does call back to like cowboy kind of stuff. And even even the way Rambo goes about completing his mission here feels reminiscent of of those kinds of American stories where we we have a I don't know, we have a way of backing the rebels and stuff. Like the the people who go beyond the bounds of, of you know, like the normal the normal path of problem solving and stuff. 
Uh, so he does have kind of like a like a renegade cowboy vibe to him. Yeah, it's important to note actually. There's a dialogue exchange here between uh, Charles Napier and Richard Crenna that uh, I didn't take notes on it or anything. I didn't take any notes on this movie. It's Rambo too. Um, <laughs> but basically, there's a there's a there's like a statistics moment here where basically they're arguing back and forth about freeing the POWs and how ugly it makes the U.S. government and the military look. Um, to be flagrantly ignoring this this problem and the the lives that are affected by it, and basically Napier is uh, he he they they both cite some specific examples that I want to say James Cameron or Stallone put in here specifically to be inflammatory or to bring light to something that was ripped from the headlines because I think Richard Crenna mentions that um, there was there was a uh, there was a ransom, I guess, that was not paid by the U.S. military or the government uh, to free POWs. It was basically the the Vietnamese army said, hey, we got these people. Give us a few billion dollars and you can have them back. And it it reeks of something that was made public around the time where it's like the public was made aware of the fact that this this situation actually occurred. And then they kind of wedged it into the movie uh, for some political commentary. Um, so that that's kind of the source of the tension between those two characters while Rambo is away. But I just figured I'd bring that up um, being as it, I'm pretty sure it was actually something that really happened probably sometime in the, or was made known sometime in the eighties. But anyway, Rambo uh, grabs his M60 and uh, Martin Cove says hello. And, uh, Rambo's not too thrilled about that, so he beats his ass <laughs> and uh, casually walks into the the hangar where they have their uh, command center set up. And Matt, am I right in saying that this this sequence is probably more more iconic than maybe the entire movie, where it's like this is a sequence that people know and have maybe even like pantomimed themselves uh, without having seen the movie? I think that they barely recall majority of the movie and just assume that this is actually what occurs when he starts going ape shit over in Vietnam. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Where basically the the image of a shirtless Sylvester Stallone with a bandana, of course, uh brandishing an M60 and shooting into the air <laughs> is is utterly iconic. And it's only one moment that's it's like 10 seconds in the movie, but I for some reason, this image is just like burned into the memories of many people and, and certainly uh, was borrowed and placed into many other movies that would go on to imitate this one. Well, I was going to say you've touched on some interesting things on this home, this final stretch of the film where like kind of that like energy you were talking about that he conveys when he, once he gets off the chopper, like it really the whole movie, when you remove like the minor like. You know, I guess the love interest section and the minor like plot points at the very beginning to give him an excuse to go back to Vietnam. Like it really just has the energy of a kid playing with his action toys. You know, it really is just like, Oh yeah, now he gets into the chopper, he blows up this and Oh yeah, now he's on a boat and he has a bazooka and all, you know, and if you really think about it, it's like the age of probably the director and Stallone and all that, they grew up playing things like, cowboys and indians cops and robbers which in our era like that's not really the best way to approach it but really it's that energy of like they're not really good versus 
bad. It's just kind of like this one looks like this, this one looks like this, and let's mash them together, and this one wins. You know, kind of like it, it, it's the toy box effect, essentially, yeah. which was perfect for the '80s. Like, there's no attachment to anything. It's just like you know, yeah, yeah, kill, kill, whatever, blow up, exciting. So there's that element which I think is why Rambo became such a mythical figure following this movie in you know american culture for a period of time of just being like even though like we just said like the iconic sequences of just shooting a gun within a building in random building in thailand that's what people now ascribe to him being in the jungle after wiping out a whole army with an m60 and now shooting in the air in victory you know when the sense essence it's really him like rebelling against this bureaucrat dick who refuses to go in and do his job and in that sense, it does this brilliant job of unhooking. It's like the colonel, the military, is the good guy. The government official is the dick asshole controlling the things from behind the scenes. He's the real prick. You're the he's the one you want to hate. Yeah, I mean, it. We talked about this, I think, before we recorded, actually. But like the success of Die Hard, which we did review for the podcast not too long ago, um, in December, I believe. Um, can be directly attributed to this kind of like like I'm I'm having two two thoughts at the same time here, so try to follow along. But basically you have Rambo who's, you know, cut, he's chiseled, he doesn't have a physique like, you know, ninety-nine percent of the, the men on this planet do. Um, he's he is he's an action figure. Like he's beyond human. He's he's something that, you know, regardless of personality and stuff like that, a lot of people probably aspire to be in some part of their mind. Whereas John McClane three years later, or yeah, I think it was three years later in response to that is he's more, he looks more like an average Joe, like who would get progressively in better shape as the years would go on. But anyway, it, it was a response to that. But um, in the case of Rambo, it's like a situation where, the actions that he takes are are what I think a lot of a lot of people wish they could do. Where it's like you see a problem, and in Rambo's case, he he has this organization backing him with all these resources, and like I said, it literally just comes down to one man making a decision and taking action. And that's that's something that I think a lot of people can relate to and probably get really swept up in. Where it's like. You know, especially these days, like in contemporary settings, that's part of what makes these movies so fun to go back to is that they're so bold faced and how fucking stupid they are. And, you know, we we all wish the world was as simple as as a dumb action movie presents it. Um, But unfortunately, this is not how things are done. This is not how stuff actually gets done. But to to see an action icon on screen just like get shit done it's very similar to like dirty harry which approached things in a slightly more realistic fashion but the end of the day that's a story about a frustrated cop dealing with red tape and kind of skirting that line and getting something done and i i think i think this movie kind of shares a little bit of that dna dirty harry in particular but um this whole sequence of him like the entire finale of this movie basically of him blowing up vietnam and then blowing up the comm center with the m60 and go I, I think like the word that comes to mind is catharsis where it's like in regards to the whole shit show of the vietnam war and the baggage of john rambo as a character i think that's what that's kind of supposed to symbolize is that you really could spin this to be the end of the story for this particular character 
was not meant to be, but but you know probably should have been, but probably should have been given where they took him. Although I will defend that fourth movie. I did think it was I did think it was kind of a retread of this one in some ways, but actually did some things better and more in a more honest fashion, I guess. I mean, um, that's that's exactly how I feel about Rocky Balboa for yeah, that, because yeah. that's my favorite one, too. And largely because it seems like the only one he actually wrote while having viewed the others and said, like, what do I like from these? And how can I fix some of the mistakes I made from the past? Yeah, it drops a lot of the excess. And and like I said about the, the Rocky movies, I, that's always stuck with me that I've always felt that the sequels became much more about like doing things by by the action booklet where it's like we need to have him do such and such things otherwise the movie won't feel right whereas rocky and rocky balboa it's more just about it's i wouldn't call it slice of life it's much much grander than that but it's much more concerned with just showing rocky be rocky and it's he's a good enough character and a good enough performer that for me personally yeah that that was enough <laughs> like the fighting stuff in both of those movies is kind of like it's there it's important to the story um but you could have excised it and it still would have been fine um but yeah the, the final confrontation in this movie is uh rambo is unfortunately out of bullets <laughs> that is a thing that doesn't happen to rambo very often especially after the sequel um so he he heads into the back room and he confronts Murdoch, who of course was responsible for bailing on him when he had secured one of the POWs. So they have beef for sure. Um, and Rambo takes out his iconic Rambo knife, which um, anybody who knows knives will tell you that's total fucking bullshit. But um, uh, it's got a compass in the end. Uh, that, that is a line from Rambo three that I will defend. The blue light. I don't know if you remember that one, but I that is a still it's a Stallone dad joke that actually lands for me. Whereas it's like the Afghani guy's going over his kit and he's like, what is this? And he's like, it's a blue light. And he's like, what does it do? It turns blue. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I like that. That's, that's cute. Cause um, regardless of how you feel about Stallone and, and these two icons of his filmography, I do actually believe that there is a difference between his portrayal of the two. Like I can look at him slipping into rocky and rambo mode and i don't get confused like he actually is giving a performance only difference is the rocky one's better <laughs> but... well yeah i mean rocky won't shut the fuck up i mean it's like he's just constantly talking like even like when there's no need to be talking and it's enjoyable it, it works because that's who he is but you know rambo's so stoic and just like his own like in his own head the whole movie so yeah, no, it, it's a distinct performance, and that's why Mom always hated Rocky too. Is that he just wouldn't shut the fuck up, <laughs> and he was a little high on himself for sure. And of course, Rocky Five. I don't know if you remember Rantlers, but Rant. I'm going to send you that clip after we're done. It's a uh, it's Christmas, and he's trying to say that Santa's on the roof, and he can't quite get the words out. <laughs> he just uh, Rantlers. <laughs> it's like, Fuck. <laughs> How hard did Drago hit you? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, but yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's as unintelligible as the final sequence here that we have yet to discuss. So, Well, that's at the end of the first one. This one, thankfully, he keeps it short, short and sweet. 
or he he holds up the knife he has murdoch pinned to a table and he just says mission accomplished and then he warns him that like there are other pow's out there you got to find them or i'll find you <laughs> yeah. okay that's a that's a threat for sure but um he he heads off to the airfield and troutman's with him and they have an exchange here where troutman tells him like you're free now but then he kind of retracts that and he's like you got you can't keep running away forever john it's like i don't really know what you're talking about you're talking in elliptical terms there colonel <laughs> i just killed a lot of people i'm a little confused keep it keep it straightforward <laughs> but um yeah rambo has a little bit of a speech it's it's not a speech but just a few choice words here to conclude the film where uh troutman confronts him and tells him basically like uh, don't hate your country like like it, it's like you you can hold all sorts of hate in your in your heart and whatnot but don't hate your country and he's like what are you talking about i love my country i would die for it um and i think the concluding lines for the film are basically like it his his dream would be to live in a country that that loves its veterans or its soldiers as much as they love it um and then we end with a frank stallone song because brotherly love <laughs> it's like because frank's got to eat and sylvester wants to make him work for it <laughs> <laughs> that's accurate and yeah. yeah that that sequence it's stallone he, he does it so poorly and i really think that his intentions were very good yeah because it really came across like something he probably heard from a real vietnam veteran not saying all every single one of them share the sentiment, but it seems like something that in the course of doing research, he probably spoke with a couple of people who spent some time in country. And that was the sentiment that many of them should share. And I think that's what he was going for. It just was so over the top and just so poorly executed that it's tough. Well, it, it's right message, wrong movie. <laughs> you can't you can't have the like you said action figures smashing together 40 minute finale and then end with this like heartfelt sentimental moment that's meant to make you think it's like no nothing about this movie made me expect i had to bring my brain to the theater you open your film with an explosion <laughs> for fuck's sake um and even the song like the song actually is like the real kicker where it's like it's it's called peace in our life and it's like a, a heartfelt, like, like we are the world, we are the children kind of like, like it's, it's that kind of song. I mean, you would be better off ending this with real American. <laughs> I mean, freeze frame, real American. Sure. It would fit right in, but yeah, I, I mean, Stallone is image conscious enough that he knows that Rambo means something to many people. What that might be is up to them, but he does know that he, his actions on film with this character carry weight uh, with a certain audience. And like you said, I'm pretty sure he was cognizant of that and he wanted to try to do something with it, try, try to appeal, appease whatever audience that might be. Um, but it's, it just comes across as like a little tone deaf and totally out of, out of left field. Well, and I think like, it's funny without getting too much into it, but like the last Rambo movie, yeah. which we both kind of agree is kind of just like a mean spirited, not great action movie, just kind of very much on that violence porn kind of, you know, track. Um, but I think like 
at the time, like, I think the reason, part of the reason this movie was so well received was like a lot of the audience was now kind of entering an era where they were starting to remove Vietnam from their consciousness. Like I said, it was big in our household just because our father was a vet. So we had, we heard about it, but for many, many other people in this country, they, once the conflict kind of ended, that's, they never thought about it again. So they can move forward. So despite these moments of political, you know, themes throughout this movie, like if you're just kind of tuning that out and only focusing on the action, it can be very enjoyable. And that's where the staying power of this movie is, is the further removed from actually knowing like the backstory, the conflict, like the easier it is just absorb it as a popcorn flick and just enjoy watching explosions and this, you know, invincible superhero just taking on the world. And I think that that's what he was trying to go for in the last Rambo movie. And I think that his, that character may have been better well served just doing that or more similar to just Rambo, the fourth one. Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, he's fighting an evil thing. That's a reality in the world, but it's so isolated that very few people are even aware it exists. And it's not something that's going to get fixed anytime without a lot of other factors at play. So it can be just a minor conflict and it's over and that's it. You know, like with this, like, like I said, if you're just dumb him down to just being just this, he appears in a scenario where action needs to occur and he performs action. Like that's the Rambo I grew up with of just invincible hero here to save the day for America, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the character has outlived its usefulness at this point and I'm, I'm a little bummed that uh, spoiler alert for a uh, Rambo last blood um, post credits. He's revealed to be still alive and kicking and uh, putting horses up on two legs. Um, I, I, I don't think there needs to be another chapter in the Rambo story uh, from a political standpoint. I don't think there's a whole lot more to say, at least from that character. I mean, sure. There's, you know, all sorts of stories you can do with with you know Vietnam veterans and whatnot, but not, not Rambo. <laughs> Fuck. But well, I yeah. was just gonna say the Expendables. That's basically what it evolved into. Like he's a little more of a leader and a little more communicative in those. But at the same time, like that was kind of the trajectory Rambo should have kind of gone, rather than the Rambo three route, which kind of leaned further into the political aspect of it. Yeah, the Expendables are just dumb entertainment and everything about them pretty much seems like the people making the films were well aware of that. So they're the, the message isn't, isn't muddled. It's just like, no, we're, we're here to have a good time. Um, so it, I, I think you're right. It's like, that's, that's doing what Rambo post Rambo two should have probably been. Um, yeah, it's yeah. just generic enemies and just, you know, excuse for action beat after action beat. Yeah. Yeah. And I, seem to remember um, most of the countries where the fighting occurs in those movies are fictional. So it removes, I mean, you can certainly establish like some visual like parallels to existing countries and whatnot, but it, it checks all that at the door and it's just like, they're, they're bad. Just trust me. They're Cobra basically. (laughs) Cobra. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, this was a Rambo two directed by George P. Cosmatos. um, And, in some ways, I guess this was just kind of an overview of the entire Rambo franchise to some degree. Um, but yeah, this is this has been the first episode of Action April. Of, of course, we're going to be exploring a different action hero from week to week. But um, 
before we get to that, though, um, before we say our goodbyes, I figure I should let Matt uh, say a little something about his podcast, because like I said uh, up front, uh, Matt has his own show. It's called Couch Co-op. Uh, you want to let the folks at home know where they can find it and what it's all about? Yeah, I mean, if you can still tolerate my voice after singing through this whole thing, um, <laughs> you can find us pretty much anywhere that podcasts are uploaded to. Uh, Couch Co-op, it's essentially a book club for video game nerds. We sit around, uh, me and a couple of friends, and we discuss what we're playing and, yeah, whatever topic comes to mind for that week. Well said. But um, in the meantime, though, if you'd like to catch up on any of our catching up on cinema content, um, you can find all of that collected on our website at uh, catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, we also have a couple of social media accounts in the form of an Instagram, at catchinguponcinema, as well as a Twitter, at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those and I will get back to you in a jiffy. And uh, the podcast is available pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. So fucking Google it. Uh, but that being said, thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. Bye.